Okay, good morning, everyone. It's Saturday, June 10th with another edition of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. I say this every week, but I'll say it again, which is I'm really happy to be with all of you. I'm pretty excited for this week's free school, not just because it's one week before our event, but also because I'm really looking forward to the discussion today, um, which I think is important and related to also the theme of our upcoming festival. Um, but before we begin the main discussion, um, next, we just wanted to go over our event next week, um, which is Unconquered Love, The Magnificent Lives of Paul Robeson and the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Um, we wanted to share that, make sure everyone knew who's going to attend that is at a new location. Um, it's going to be at the first Unitarian Church in Philadelphia, which is at 21st and Chestnut. Um, and the entrance is on South Van Pelt Street for anyone who's listening and is going to come in person. Um, and we'll make sure there's clear signage and balloons so people know where to go. But we're really excited. We've talked about it in the past, but the whole day is going to be full of um, performances, dancing and singing performances, musical performances um, from China, Bangladesh, India, Cambodia, African drumming, African dance. Um, there's also going to be avant-garde jazz. And I think the most special part, some of the most special parts will also be um, we're going to have student minister Abdul Haq Muhammad speak on the teachings of the most honorable Elijah Muhammad, as well as um, other prayers and speaking portions by um, student minister Rodney Muhammad from mosque number 12 um, and Kiana Hunt from the Church of the Overcomer. And I would like to officially announce that our lovely MCs are Brandon Doe and Purba Chatterjee. Um, so that's really exciting. And they're taking charge and really telling the story. Like it's not just a bunch of performances, but they're going to paint the sky, like really like weave together the story and single garment of destiny of unity and how it was Paul Robeson and the most honorable Elijah Muhammad in their visions of an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of humanity that they were seeing unfold in a period of world revolution. Like that is what we need today. And that is also the philosophy um, and vision of the world that we in the Saturday Free School strive to embody and want to carry forward. And so I'm really excited to see Brandon Doe and Perba really like weave this together and also weave not just the performances together, but the people's struggles, like the civilizations, the values, the people's struggles that come out of these civilizations and how you can see it in the art, the music, the performances. Um, so that's the content of next week's festival. Um, and I don't know how you can hear that and not just be enticed to come. Uh, Cause Alice and I, we actually just went, yesterday we had visited the Leon Sullivan Human Services building. And immediately when we just talked about, immediately when we talked about the performances and how special it is that to have all these world's peoples together celebrating their music and dance and art all under this vision of unity in a time where a ruling elite seeks to divide to continue to control humanity that wants to be free immediately when we were talking about just like the dancing and the singing and all these civilizations the woman who worked there roberta who alice and eddie had met at a previously on sullivan 
ceremony. Oh yeah, the woman remembered you, by the way, Eddie. I hope you're flattered. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm unforgettable, thank you. But she was so excited. She was like, that's really special. Um, and I think in some ways, I forgot how special that is because in some ways we have a little bit of that in free school every week. But I was like, yeah, that is special to have the world's people so triumphantly and like with so much energy celebrate their culture and thus by doing that together celebrate a vision of the world um, that will continue to last and yeah so anyways it's all to say that we hope to see you there um, and we're excited uh, a few other updates is uh, we're working on because we're at the first unitarian church of philadelphia um, we wanted to talk a little bit about that but before we do that uh, the space that we're in, it's the like social, it's called a social hall. It kind of looks like a basement, but it has lower ceilings, but it's a really warm space and there's a stage. Um, and I think it'll be really nice. And we're putting together an exhibit to cover every single wall. And this exhibit is going to like in, like in an exhibit form, celebrate the same thing, which is not just Paul Robeson's life, the most honorable Elijah Muhammad's life, but celebrate them as scientists and philosophers. Um, I like the way that Eddie said it once. He was like, these were two giants who um, who were able to create, who give us the science and philosophy of unity, like the scientific and philosophic basis of unity. And we're going to show that in exhibit form. And so not just show biographical parts of where Elijah Muhammad and Paul Robeson came from, but also show their involvement, how they were raised in a world revolutionary like moment of the black freedom, like the black struggle in America or like the anti-colonial movements around the world, the Russian revolution, the world peace movement, how they were a part of that, but also they contributed to it. Um, so we'll show Robeson's contributions, how he was everywhere. He literally gave every second of his life to the working class of the people who were rising up for freedom, including in the US, which is why people like Robeson and Elijah Muhammad are so punished by the US government for a reason. And then we'll also show through Muhammad Speaks the consciousness of the nation of Islam. Um, and then the exhibit will end with the civil rights movement, the third American revolution, which gives the foundation of the emergence of a fourth American revolution and the possibility of, the emerge of an emergence of a new American people, which you know we'll touch on later with our discussion of Cornell West and his presidential run um, and this time in um u.s politics in the world crisis and whatnot but okay i know i just said a lot <laughs> that's because there's so much going on for this event and i think it's all really exciting um it's always the last week for me where i'm like let's get this like let's get this done we like are doing something really important and it's i don't know i feel like it's always so beautiful and special because it comes from human beings it's a human contribution and it's a contribution to humanity and there's something just really special about that. But I wanted to um, ask people who visited the first Unitarian church space to talk about why it's such a special location. Um, so I don't know if like Alice, you want to talk about it or Perba or Serafina or Kathy. I guess I can start um, with the first Unitarian church. I know the context is that we have had to change event spaces over the past week or so. And so as we were looking at the city of Philadelphia, we were looking for places that we would be able to have events at. 
And I think this is within the context that many institutions that are for the people are very rare. But we're looking like institutions for the people, meaning that are open for um, groups to have events at, to talk about ideas, to perform, to have the sort of program that we're having. And so one of the spaces that we ended up being able to look into was the first Unitarian Church. And actually, many of us in the free school aren't completely familiar with the Unitarian Church, maybe except for like Doc and Jeremiah. <laughs> but, you know, we ended up at this place. And like the first thing is when we were speaking to um, Norman, who's the coordinator at the church, he was so welcoming. He was so helpful in saying like, absolutely, like, let's work out a schedule. When are you thinking about coming? Here are the different spaces that you can have. But then we, a group of us went there to see the space and to um, uh, essentially plan logistically for the event. But in our conversations in Norman, we found out that that place is also where King had come to Philadelphia um, to listen to the lecture by Mordecai Johnson, the president of Howard University. And it was also where King started or learned about the teachings of Gandhi and of nonviolence. And that really started his transformation of turning to nonviolence as a strategy for a liberation of people and specifically through the civil rights movement. We were all really in awe because we didn't um, choose this, the place uh, with that in mind. Um, and it was so perfect because this festival is dedicated to Robeson and Elijah Muhammad, but we are always acting, also dedicating to the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And particularly his concept of the world house, mm -hmm. you know, through this festival, the people of all civilizations, all backgrounds coming together really to see one another, another perform, to imagine together. And it's exactly what Emily was saying earlier, where when we were talking to Roberta of the Leon Sullivan Human Resources Center, we were like, no, you know, we're asking you to come here, not because we just want you to come, but because we put so much work into this and it's really never been done before. And, you know, sometimes like in free school, we're always talking to one another and we're saying, you know, this really is unique. But when we said that, she was like, no, yeah, it doesn't exist in Philadelphia or even in this country. But specifically in Philadelphia, she was like, no, like, I don't really I don't mm -hmm. see anything like this where all of these different groups, you know, Mexicans, Chinese, Indians, um, African, all coming together to perform, to show, see each other's art and culture and really art and culture of the people. Um, and so it's so perfect, I think this place, the first Unitarian church um, to come back to, you know, the spirit of King. We were all just flabbergasted <laughs> when he said, he was like, the, the Norman was like, oh, you know, King came here to listen to the lecture. And we were like, wait, what lecture? And we connected the dots of, oh, that lecture, because mm -hmm. originally, and Doc maybe can speak to this more, we thought it was at another location, um, the Fellowship House, which mm -hmm. is uh, slightly farther north of where the Unitarian Church is right now. Um, and I think that also speaks to the possibilities that we're trying to create in the city of Philadelphia, you know, new um, partners, um, new opportunities, and specifically a place like the Unitarian Church, and where there is a history of them being essentially the white Christians that have been the most progressive 
and support of the anti-slavery and civil rights movements. Um, and that's something that I'm also coming to learn more about. Um, and uh, it's just been, I think the past week really has been, you know, there's always work to be done, but I think the whole process of putting an event together and the people we meet and the ideas that we continue to discover and refine is transformative for all of us. Yeah. Um, and I'm so excited for the event and to chair the mm -hmm. event and to talk about the event and to see it coming together, uh, come together. Yeah, Roberta was like, <laughs> Roberta from the Leon Sullivan Human Services was like, when we were telling her about how we changed locations and then like, we are like, yeah. And then we realized that this is where King learned about um, Gandhi. Roberta was like, see, God always has a plan. <laughs> and yeah, I guess I just wanted to say on a personal note that every day I get to spend with you guys, I feel like I never, I never stay the same. Like I'm always, I always change for the better. And it was really special. Like that Wednesday when we went to visit the church to like, you know, finalize the details, all that stuff. I had just gotten back from San Francisco and I had, I landed down. I went home. I took a shower. I took a 20 minute nap and then I got up. We went to the church and I was like, at first I was like, oh boy, like another, you know, we got to do this. We have to do this. But then being with you guys there and learning this history, I was like, God takes care. You know, God, like, God does take care of this stuff and we take care of this stuff. And, and then also when we were getting, we got, so we got coffee after to process everything with the church and the fact that like, this is our space for the event and the history. And um, Doc, you had told us about James Reeb, that famous Unitarian in the civil rights movement. Like if you look at photos of the civil rights movement, he's that infamous white guy. Like, you, well, I've always been like, who is that white guy? Like he's the guy with the little collar thing. And I never knew who he was. I was like, oh, he's just like a white guy, like a, you know, part of the movie. No, but he was James Reeb, a really well-known Unitarian, a huge part of the civil rights movement. And he was killed. He was murdered by white people in the South. And when we were having coffee, we read King's eulogy to him. And it was just so moving. Um, this eulogy to James Reeb, this Unitarian who King says outright. And like, first of all, it's everyone should read that eulogy because we were talking about it at coffee, but like King is literally genius. Like he is a genius above like just the amount, like his style of thinking and writing and speaking is unmatched. And it's so in some ways distinctly American. It is like so distinctly American genius, like world genius. And King's made a point to say, James Reeb, he did not die in vain because it's up to us to continue his legacy. But King also said James Reeb was like an embodiment of the best of America, the best of America's conscience. And because James Reeb lived, it means that all of us, America has hope, that we have the capacity to be new. And it was just so beautiful. And I was like, damn, like Unitarians and I don't know, but yeah, that's about the space, but I'll let other people talk. Um, but by the way, I forgot to talk about logistics about the two day event. So I'll do that after people discuss, I'm sorry. Emily, why, why don't we just go through all the details for next Saturday and Friday? I don't think okay. people know about next Friday. 
but if we could just go in and then uh, we could talk about, uh, you know, how we're going out to different places and such and such and so forth. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I should have, I should have begun with this. I'm sorry. Um, so it's actually a two day. So this festival, um, that we've been talking about is the Saturday program, but really the whole event to celebrate Paul Robeson and the most honorable Elijah Muhammad begins on Friday. So that's Friday, June 16th. Um, and it will be a documentary screening at night doors open at 5 30 PM. The location is the Church of the Overcomer, which is at 1010 Sunset Road in Trainer. And Trainer is like a 20, 30 minute drive outside of Philly. Um, and the doors open at 5.30, there'll be some refreshments. Um, and then we'll have a documentary screening of this documentary that the free school made. And this was another thing that we were telling Roberta about where we said, she was like, oh, I've never heard of this documentary. And we were like, yeah, because we made it, <laughs> we made it. And she was like, yeah, that's, it's interesting how much people, people really appreciate it. She was like, that's how you have to do things. She was like, she was so happy. She was like, oh, you guys made it. And she was like, that's what you have to do nowadays. You have to make it. Um, and so it's called Paul Robeson, Man for the Future. Um, and we screened it in Chicago at our Chicago event as well. Um, we're really excited to screen it in Philadelphia. Neha will introduce the documentary as well as Pastor Keith Collins of the Church of the Overcomer. So that's the first day. And like, I, I think all of us recommend the documentary. Um, Saturday, that's when the Festival of Art and Culture will be um, doors open at 10 a.m. Like we said, it, the location is the First Unitarian Church of Philadelphia at 21st and Chestnut. Um, and the first half of the day will be singing, musical performances. We'll have free lunch, which will be Indonesian food. Um, and then we'll have our afternoon portion finishing with um, jazz performances at the end. Um, so it'll, the event will end around 6 p.m. Um, everything is free. And um, so I think I covered, I covered the event logistics. Um, and then today after free school, um, I think all of us will be going out and doing outreach, taking different neighborhoods, and we'll be um, flyering, um, going to certain institutions, and just spreading the word. We're also doing social media, um, social media outreach and uplifting, and um, and did you want to talk about fundraising? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so part of in addition, sometimes it's also, so I've actually, let me start. I've been tasked with fundraising for this event. And it's always interesting because I think for many institutions, fundraising is the top priority uh, of to carry out an event. But sometimes it slips my mind because I think we're so focused on the ideas, the outreach, talking to people. Um, but there is a part of putting together this event um, specifically, which is fundraising. Um, all of the money that we that people donate will be going to the performers, to providing this um, free lunch um, for everyone. We try to pamper all of our guests. Um, and so if you haven't donated or if you've already donated and would like to donate, uh, please donate to our GoFundMe. We'll send the link uh, in the chat, but we'll also uh, be posting it to our various social media sites. Um, so, yeah. 
Um, so that's our event. Um, I don't know if I missed anything, if anyone has anything they'd like to add. Yeah, I uh, just, you know, our trips to various places, I think, um, you know, it's kind of like a godsend that the first Unitarian Universalist church opened up to us. And that church goes back, that this specific church, I think it goes back to the 1840s. Uh, the first Unitarians um, appear in Philadelphia, maybe the United States, around the late 1700s. Um, and their tradition, and it's quite interesting, uh, these early denominations, which were anti-slavery, um, pro-democratic revolution, uh, I mean, just a, a magnificent history, uh, but nobody hardly knows about them. It's a sad thing to say we know Episcopalians, we know Presbyterians, we know Baptists and Methodists, but these uh, revolutionary denominations, which were immigrants who came fleeing uh, repression in Europe, um, and uh, so on. We, it's kind of connected with the Protestant Reformation. Uh, but this church is a beautiful church whose architecture reflects the values of the Unitarian Universalist. Um, and the people um, that run it, uh, what was his name, Emily? What did you say his name? Norman. Norman, Norman. Very kind man. Um, of course, we wanted to use the, uh, the, the sanctuary, but it was already booked. Uh, but nonetheless, we have a wonderful space uh, that works perfectly for us with a beautiful kitchen. Um, and, you know, just think about the unity of the people here. You have the Nation of Islam, the Unitarian Church, the Church of the Overcomer, the Church of the Crucifixion you know, which is Episcopal. But, oh yeah, what I wanted to say is, while, you know, you have this great human being, Father Paul Washington and others who rose up in the 50s and 60s to challenge the Episcopalian church, which is the American version of the Church of England, um, which means that it was never a church that opposed slavery or colonialism, for that matter, never did. And the overhang of that continues to this day. And it's a sad commentary. But the Unitarians have a different history. And uh, what we experienced was that history. I had, you know, and I, I was apologizing to everybody. 
How did I forget about the Unitarians? Why didn't I remember them? Uh, but nonetheless, it's uh, so. Uh, what is, uh, in terms of interest and go going and interest, in, what does that look like at this point? On the Facebook page. On Facebook page. Anybody know? Uh, I can check it. Mm -hmm. All I have are vibes. All she has are All I have are vibes. I don't know about the official Facebook. I haven't been keeping track, but I do. I think there's a lot of interest from the places, like especially the mosques that yeah. we're visiting. Yeah. And, um, but I don't know about our online. Yeah. And um, Brandon is reaching out to uh, the mosque in Baltimore. Yeah. And I'm going to try to reach out to the imam. There are only two imams in the nation of Islam, and one of them is the minister of the Baltimore Mosque, but he's also a historian and archivist of the history of the nation of Islam. So I'm gonna reach out to see if he might come, might set up an exhibition as well. But uh, also we're trying to reach out to the uh, nation of Islam Mosque in Harlem. Mm. I've seen uh, at least I'm on, I'm on their email listservs for uh, mosque number twelve here in Philly, and they've been uh, sending out the flyers. So I've seen I got multiple emails, so people are definitely uh, feeling it. Do Do they have the new uh, location in what uh, they're sending out? Yep. Cool. 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 Uh, by the way, um, uh, Wilma Leon and Garland Nixon. They invited me to come on their show mm -hmm. and talk about the event on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And then I think um, Brandon set up something for me to talk on a podcast run by a member of the Nation of Islam, I think this week also. I forget what day in particular. And we're going down to the Church of the Overcomer tomorrow, right? This is, oh yeah. is it okay if I just say like some things that I was thinking about more like I guess more in terms of like the ideas and not logistics or okay um yeah because I think like I've been I wasn't here for last week so part of it is I've been trying to just get caught up on like all of the event planning and I'm really excited about all of it and I feel like in particular like hearing about the history of the Unitarian Church and this and the Unitarian Church in Philly, I think I feel like growing up, I didn't really know anything about Unitarians other than that they seem kind of like hippies, <laughs> hippies a little bit. Like there's also like theologically, they're not really, I feel like in line with a lot of like basically like the Protestant sphere. Um, but I feel like things that stuck out to me in terms of the history and I also didn't know that they went back that far like I thought that they were founded more basically in like the 20th century or something so that was really interesting to learn um but that I feel like because we're framing this event 
in the under this broader idea of this Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of humanity, it made me think a lot about, yeah, what did it mean for King to first hear about Gandhi and nonviolence and the Indian freedom struggle in the Unitarian church? Because I think, I don't know, like even just like this idea that we've been talking about, it made me think about a way that you can interpret the civil rights movement itself is that it was in itself also basically an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of America, right? Because it was the Black freedom movement inspired by Gandhi, by not just the Indian anti-colonial struggle, but the world anti-colonial struggle. That the world anti-colonial struggle in some ways helped make possible something like the Black freedom movement to emerge. And I think that when we talk about this idea of an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of humanity, I feel like people may not know necessarily what to think of it, probably, because it's, I think there can, there can be an association that sees it as almost like, oh, this is something that is only exclusive to basically like Black people and Asian people, when I feel like that's not really the case. And I think the specific history of, yeah, King hearing about Gandhi and nonviolence in the Unitarian Church, which I believe or understand is based like in Philly in particular is like it's not like a black church like it is unless I'm mistaken yeah and I think the point I guess I'm trying to get towards is that yeah like when we talk about this Afro-Asiatic thing it's in the vein of basically transforming all of American society and also of yeah basically world processes of transformation and I think in the same way that like all of the good things that have been achieved basically from the European enlightenment, not including basically like colonialism and imperialism and all that stuff. All of the good things that came out of the enlightenment are basically the property of humanity. They have become the property of humanity. Right. And I feel like we think about this period of world history that we're living through and the possibilities that we're seeing around the world, but also within the United States in terms of that, universal sense and not in a kind of exclusive or narrow sense and i just feel like yeah like the this whole thing of like it just i don't know it's really interesting to think about like what did it mean that king heard these ideas first in basically like a what would be seen as like a white a white church or a white religious institution um and i guess the last thing that i've been thinking about is that in general with this event um and with what we're doing in the free school, so much of it is trying to pick up that mantle of the civil rights movement and of the black freedom struggle in that the new, like basically the way that the world is changing, it creates new possibilities for like new possibilities and new means of struggle, new modes of struggle that can be tested and experimented with and um, applied here in the American context. And I feel like this festival, like people may not, I guess, see it in that light in terms of like that ideological thing, but it is really important because this is essentially our experimentation in terms of, I, I think Alice mentioned this, but bringing together groups of people to know one another, right? And I feel like this is also part of the theme that Doc has been talking about over the past couple of weeks in terms of World War II, like, the world, like basically World War II, making it possible for all of humanity to know all of humanity, right? People who had never known each other 
like across Africa, across Asia, across Latin America, and, and in the United States too, um, to actually know one another in a way that was not possible basically for the rest of humanity's history prior to. And everything that we're doing is basically trying to pick up that spirit where I feel like no matter who you look to, whether it's Baldwin or King or Robeson or Du Bois, all of them were inspired by what was happening in the world. And this gave them a sense of possibility and optimism and a sense of almost daring to want to experiment in new ways to struggle for freedom. Um, and yeah, I just feel like we're in such a unique moment in world history right now where how can we not try to take some of those same, I guess that same movement, you know, that inspired people like King and to be inspired by what's happening in the world right now and the changes that are happening in the world and to try to apply them in new ways for this context and for the American context in particular. Um, but yeah, that, that's just something I've been uh, thinking about, I guess, for the past week or so. Yeah, and just to what you're saying, Jeremiah, like I'm also excited, not only are we like bringing all these institutions together, like all these, you know, dancers and mm -hmm. singers and the churches and the Nation of Islam, like, but like bringing together Paul Robeson and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is um, really meaningful. Um, them as people have not been associated with one another. Mm -mm. Um, mm -hmm. Even in like black history, I guess, or like radical left thinking and things. Um, and the question is, well, they should be together um, because they have mm -hmm. a revolutionary essence that links them to the world and to the future um, without either um, person we're we're left with less tools like we don't have um, a similar amount of clarity as we do with them and like mm -hmm. just thinking about their contribution scientifically like um, Emily had brought up before and philosophically also tells me that yes a new people were born because of these men um and like there's a lot to go into like about either and i've been like doing kind of like a deep dive of the honorable elijah muhammad and just listening to him speak and brandon had sent me louis farrakhan's biographies kind of sort of biography of the honorable elijah muhammad i don't know i forget what it was called and so that everything is kind of like seeping into my brain a little bit but I'm it, like in reflecting about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, he was like awakening a mass of people. His duty was to um, bring a downtrodden people up into being human beings. Um, and you know, like we like we hear with Martin Luther King injecting the human civilization in America like Elijah Muhammad was also like um, using that same spirit, using that like, <laughs> cause he was kind of ahead um, of his time, um, but he was using that same motivation to 
to tell a group of people that they can become a part of a new world that is coming to be. You know what I mean? Like there's like a world mm -hmm. that <laughs> wasn't there yet mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was preparing um, America for ultimately. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's been interesting reading how the nation of Islam developed the theologically, philosophically, and also through its like resurrection because it had different um, or at least two. So, but, you know, even just this idea that um, Brandon posted about saying that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad knew that man um, was God, or, like there was God in man rather than like God from above or this like other thing, other idea of manhood. And also this idea that he had synthesized um, so much between the Old Testament, New Testament, and the Quran, um, making this new religion almost, which isn't mm. kind of like a new religion, but it's just like it matched America, it was specifically an American religion. Um, <laughs> that, you know, I guess institutionalized itself, but it wasn't. You know, he, there were things that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was working out as he was um, developing himself and the nation of Islam had developed. So there's like a belief system that is specific to America that also developed, mm -hmm. which is so cool because they're, um, it, it's just it's just nice. So just to be able to bring people together under one um, roof, and to know that, and to, and to like, you know, like that interaction that happens between people and ideas um, to develop something new based of, all, based of what has been developed um, from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and Paul Robeson, like um, learning about it, relearning it, thinking about it in a new way, um, us contextualizing why it matters. Um, that's going to be, I think, explosive for me because it it opens up space for a new spiritual worldview, this new mm -hmm. mindset mm -hmm. that is not regulated by, you know, the the now or like the pessimism or um, the like the crisis that we're faced with, and because I think. Essentially, what we're doing with the event is to, like in the 10th anniversary, struggle for the future. Um, and we have a vision of it, and we're allowing to share it, and we're allowing other people to, like, be sponges and, like, um, be able to use it. Um, so that's going to be really nice, I think. Yeah, I also wanted to add that I really like, or I really believe in the synthesis or the dialectic between Paul Robeson and um, the most honorable Elijah Muhammad, because I think Jeremiah, you had mentioned how, and, and also Serafina, how a lot of this event is about like a new creative application that meets this moment. And I actually think the two of them together is perfect because 
Paul Robeson really draws upon that scientific, artistic, world cultural basis and is really talking about how art and culture is indispensable to the development and the transformation of the society and the world. And then what I have really enjoyed about like learning from the nation and also the most honorable Elijah Muhammad is this thing of how to scientifically, philosophically develop the new human being and also how to organize in preparation for society to transform. Like how do you organize? And I don't know, it's almost like if Paul Robeson is the sky, like the timeless sky, the stars, then Elijah Muhammad is really like the men and women on the ground. And I think the two just fit together so beautifully to say that there is clearly a future, like it's coming into being and we are going to apply ourselves in a new way, like to basically carve out that future and to carve out ourselves as human beings that can like meet existing in this new future. So um, I think it was just hitting me through the conversation, like actually how unique that cross between the two of them is, especially in this moment, because back in October or September, that was with when with the 10th anniversary, we were, we were establishing like, there is a sky, there is a future. And even just the way that history has changed in the past six months goes to show how much like the ideas are continuing to develop in advance. And this event that we're having now, I really also see as a development or a synthesis coming out of our 10th anniversary. But we're more on the edge of like the creative application now is what I see. Well, Emily, if we don't have anything else to say, maybe we can go on to the uh, election in Cornell West and then maybe come back to this and uh, the, uh, the event in relationship uh, to the new political crisis that the country is moving into. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. So, would you like me to start? Okay, I'll start, okay. Um, as everyone knows, Cornell West, uh, a very unique figure uh, in American public life last week threw his hat into the presidential race. Uh, he will run as an independent on the People's Party. Uh, thus far, he is the only, as far as I know, independent candidate. Perhaps the Greens will field somebody, and perhaps the Libertarian Party will do the same. Uh, Cornell brings special talents to the politics of this time. As we've said in the past, uh, he is, I think, the most well-known public intellectual, public philosopher, and activist in the country. Uh, in a broad definition, uh, we would place Cornell on the left. Um, but most importantly, he emerges and gives voice to uh, what we like to refer to 
as a coalition of the discontented, um, a coalition of those who have lost all hope in the current system. And Cornell is joined here in this project by Donald Trump and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, but before going any further into Cornell's uh, candidacy, uh, just at the same time that he's announcing that he will run, uh, the system does something, uh, I think, uh, very desperate uh, and uh, only has deepened the political crisis, and that is the indictment of Donald Trump on federal charges of, of um, taking classified materials from the White House and then something about his uh, not being truthful or obstructing justice uh, when, uh, uh, when he was uh, questioned about it by the uh, Justice Department. Uh, clearly, Trump has not denied that he took classified material from the White House. Uh, he has argued that he had every right to declassify this material. Uh, However, the question is, well, why did he take it? And we know that Biden, as vice president, took a lot of stuff from the White House. We know that Pence has taken stuff uh, from the White House or from the pres vice presidential mansion. Uh, and it's not unusual, obviously. <clears throat> uh, however, it is, to me, it seems apparent that Trump wanted to use these documents uh, for several reasons in several ways. Um, but before I get to that, um, we cannot underestimate what this means in terms of the weaponization of the state against a candidate that the ruling class finds unacceptable. I wish to underline that. The weaponization of the institutions of the state, including the intelligence services like the CIA and FBI, the Justice Department, uh, and even the White House itself. All of these institutions, uh, ultimately the power of the state is being brought against one of the candidates in the upcoming election. Think about it. This has never occurred in American history. Uh, and there are many things that have happened to Trump over the last uh, five or six years that has never happened in the history of the United States. Uh, clearly, the Justice Department is under the control of the Biden administration. 
the FBI is an arm of the Justice Department. Uh, and we could go on and on. Uh, and, and now the courts are being bent towards the interest of the dominant sections of the ruling class. That is, those sections of the ruling class represented by Biden and the Biden administration. Uh, the indictment, uh, which came out of a um, out of a, a grand jury hearing. Now, this is very interesting. This whole grand jury process, because the grand jury that was uh, looking into whether Trump had broken laws began in Washington D.C. And for most of the time of, of this grand jury, it was in DC. Suddenly, uh, maybe a week and a half before Trump is indicted, the special prosecutor sets up a grand jury in Florida. Mm. And the indictments seemingly come out of the grand jury in Florida, which for the most part had not heard anything that the grand jury in Washington had held. So uh, what's going on here? And, and a little more than a week after that grand jury is set up in Florida, Trump is indicted in Florida, mm -hmm. not in Washington. And again, this is a federal indictment. It is not the same as what took place in New York, and it's not what is going on in Georgia, which are state indictments. This is a federal indictment. Um, and, you know, we cannot overlook the fact that the FBI attacked Trump's home in March. And even though, again, Biden has all of this stuff in his garage and other places, there was never this type of harsh treatment that's been applied to uh, Trump. Um, while the published indictment, which I have not read, has to do with classified documents and the obstruction of justice. And let me tell you, just because there is an indictment, that's what a prosecutor brings. A prosecutor sets up a grand jury because they want the appearance of objectivity. Um, an indictment does not mean that the person is guilty. The person has not yet uh, been allowed to put on a defense. But if you listen to, to MSNBC and CNN and other news outlets, they are acting like the indictment shows that Trump is guilty. However, there is a subtext here. And if you listen closely, they expose what the subtext, which is, I think, the real text, 
They are saying that Trump is not only guilty of taking classified documents out of the White House, which he did not have the authority to do, they say. Not only did he engage in obstruction of justice to prevent him having to give those documents back, but this is the key. They say that he has committed something comparable to sedition or treason. In this respect, interestingly, the prosecution of Donald Trump reminds one of the prosecution and indictment of Julian Assange, of Chelsea Manning, of Edward Snowden. I think that Trump wanted to use, and will in fact, use these documents in the upcoming presidential election. His argument will be as it has been, that these, that all of this stuff, classified stuff, there are over a billion classified documents uh, uh, in the US government. And there's more classification now than ever. But what Trump will argue, what others have argued, is that they're not keeping, this is not keeping secrets from our adversaries in Russia or China or wherever. Really, it is a way of keeping government and state secrets from the American people. In this respect, Trump is and is preparing an ideological assault upon the deep state and it's lying to the people. This is very similar to what Daniel Ellsberg did in 1971 when he released uh, the Pentagon Papers showing that the US government had been lying to the American people about the war in Vietnam and the reasons we were involved in a war in Vietnam. That is precisely what Trump, I think, wanted to use these documents for. There might be some stuff in those documents about uh, the nefarious behavior and activities against Trump himself. Um, you know, in, in a certain way, even though um, it's not uh, being discussed. This is a civil libertarian, civil rights question of the highest order. Because it is Trump, it is not looked at that way, let us say, by the ACLU or other civil libertarian and legal organizations. This is unusual, unprecedented, uh, it is election interference. It is the attempt to undermine the candidacy of Donald Trump, to get him out of the election, to criminalize him, uh, and to diminish him uh, as a candidate. However, and this is what many writers in mainstream media are saying, all of this has the opposite effect. Mm. Because people say, well, 
Why is he the only one being attacked in this way? Mm -hmm. uh, and as more and more of the American people become discontented, they will find a symbol and a voice in, um, in Donald Trump. So I think, you know, we got to keep our eyes on this. Uh, the political crisis has only deepened. It is unprecedented in the history of the United States. Uh, and um, I don't think the government has a serious case against Trump. Uh, on the other side, I don't think uh, even if it goes to court in 2024, I don't think it will be resolved uh, before the election of 2024. So Trump will run as the candidate who is being attacked by the ruling elite of this country because he stands up for ordinary people. Um, it's into this political crisis, and it is that, a deep and profound political crisis that Cornell West made his announcement. He did not contextualize his announcement within the framework of this deep political crisis. And by political crisis, what we're saying is that the ruling elite cannot rule in the ways that it is accustomed to ruling and the people do not accept their rule. Uh, the other way of talking about this, as we've always said, a crisis of legitimacy. There is no institution, major institution of American life that is not experiencing a crisis of legitimacy. The mainstream media, uh, the government, the Supreme Court, the Congress, you know, everything is in the low 20s. And of course, Biden is the most unpopular, according to polls, president uh, that we've had since polling started, uh, uh, you know, looking at presidents. Wow. Yeah. And uh, he is a very weak candidate. I doubt that he will last beyond the end of this year. They have to find someone to replace him. Uh, but Cornell announces in this situation, he makes no mention of this crisis. But he is joined in his candidacy by Trump and RFK. A coalition. They represent, the three of them, they are a crucial triad, and they represent a coalition of the discontent. Those multi-million, tens of millions of Americans who are unwilling to accept the authority of the ruling elite, the majority of these people, only a decade ago, only a decade ago, would have argued strenuously on behalf of the uniqueness of American institutions. These same people today reject these institutions. The coalition of the discontented 
might represent as much as 50% of the U.S. population. This coalition, which does not yet have a single leader or single center of operation. However, it is a populist movement of diverse ideological, religious, and political views. It is a coalition which had another manifestation in the February 19th Rage Against the War Machine March. It was a coalition of discontented people that brought that into being. Cornell's announcement of his candidacy on Democracy Now! this past week showed both strengths, weaknesses, and contradictions in Cornell's politics uh, and philosophy. Most glaringly, he seemed not to have his legs under him in discussions of war and peace. He asserted that Russia is an empire, that China is an empire, and that the United States is an empire. Uh, and by empire, he means repressive or oppressive state structures. Uh, even if Russia and China were empires, you cannot equate them with the United States who has, which has according to some estimates, a thousand military bases on foreign soil all over the world. Um, it is the United States that has provoked the war in the Ukraine. Cornell West both acknowledged this in his Democracy Now! conversation and at the same time acted like he didn't understand what that meant, sadly. So there were contradictions here and he's incapable at this point of dealing with Russia and its leadership referring to Putin, the president of Russia, as a gangster. And how he arrived at that, I don't know, you know. Um, but this idea that every major state in the world is an empire. Um, if you look at BRICS, for example, the BRICS nations, uh, are they all empires? Is South Africa an empire? Is Brazil is India, you, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I don't think you can make that case. However, and we'll return to this uh, when we talk about the relationship of philosophy to politics. Um, Cornell West, a pragmatist, a neo-pragmatist, as we've talked about it, uh, when it comes to matters of the state, is a libertarian or an anarchist, or both, really. They're not that different. In this regard, he is very similar to Noam Chomsky, who defines his politics as libertarian socialism, or at other times, anarcho-syndicalism. Mm 
anarcho or anarcho syndicalism, anarchist syndicalism, is the theory that socialism will build its um, will build itself from the factory floor up. That the state or the government should be demolished as quickly as possible. Uh, and uh, and Cornell <laughs> seems to adhere to that, that the state itself is the enemy of the people and is oppressive in and of itself. Uh, for example, we've talked about China, we've talked about uh, North Korea and other places as trying to forge a state of the whole people as against a repressive state of the bourgeoisie, of the capitalist, uh, and so on. Uh, but the state itself, according to libertarian and anarcho-syndicalist theory, is the enemy. Even as Cornell talked about being against the war in Ukraine, and even going as far as saying that the United States and the Biden administration provoked it, he has not yet developed an approach to what we would call positive peace, that is peace with justice. And he did not yet uh, articulate uh, something that, that is you know, kind of fundamental to progressive anti-war advocacy that is a U.S. peace economy, from a warfare and national security state economy to a peace economy. He doesn't have that yet, and he has to develop it. Yeah. His neo-pragmatist philosophy shapes his politics. It is an instance of something we talk about in free school, a philosophy being a site for politics. Uh, that there is hardly any philosophy that does not carry with it politics. By that, by politics, I'm meaning not electoral politics, but ideology and what side of the great battles for humanity you stand upon. You know, what we discover in our study of, uh, of Paul Robeson and of course the documentary uh, that, that people in the free school made is that Paul Robeson did coordinate his politics with his philosophy. He coordinated his philosophy to what side of the great battles of humanity he would stand on. This is difficult for Cornell. And I think it is difficult because of the predispositions of neo-pragmatism, which I'll return to. 
But it seemed, at least from the um, Democracy Now! interview, that Cornell sees the principal edge of the crisis as a spiritual and moral catastrophe that the country is living through. He would argue that Trump is a neo-fascist manifestation of this crisis. Uh, as I've said before, I would highly recommend to Cornell that he back away from that hyperbolic uh, kind of discussion uh, and, you know, it would make over half of the American people uh, pro-fascist. Uh, that's a that's a hard place to be in right now, for obvious political reasons, which I'll return to. But Cornell's concept of catastrophe, which we talked about before, uh, is ultimately a pessimistic worldview, and it sees the United States and the American people are sui generis unto themselves rather than a thing or people for itself. Cornell sees the American people as a people in ourselves. A people for ourselves says that we are at the same time a people for humanity. That is Paul Robeson. That is not Cornell. <clears throat> One of the weaknesses is the absence in his discourse of a social historical understanding of the moment. And out of the crisis of this moment, something new is emerging. We like to talk of it as an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of humanity, which does not exclude any part of humanity, but re-centers the foundation of humanity in the civilizations of Africa and Asia, which are also the civilizations of Europe. Europe is a derivative of this, as well as being its own uh, civilization. Cornell does not see, as we see, both the Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of humanity and the aspiring of the American people towards a new democracy and a new people. Um, again, you know, I don't, I, I guess I've said this so many times, uh, Cornell is absolutely wrong about Trump as being a fascist and uh, Biden being a milk to milk toast liberal. No, Biden is a warmonger. 
This is the most dangerous administration in the history of the United States, um, which is bringing us to the brink of war, not just with Russia, but with China and the possibility of nuclear war. Biden is not, uh, you know, your crazy grandfather, although he, you know, he looks it, he looks the part. He has been all of his career and is now a uh, an advocate of war. And now in the White House, even he's more dangerous. So it is the opposite from what Cornell is perceiving. Uh, and uh, the situation in the Ukraine, contrary to what Cornell sees, is not um, uh, is not just a country being invaded by an evil neighbor. It is a regime controlled by neo-fascists. Open, I won't even say neo, open fascists who regularly praise Hitler and the local Ukrainian fascists back in the days, Bandera. However, one cannot underestimate the significance of Cornell running on the People's Party platform. You know, we all remember how viciously the People's Party was attacked uh, by forces in the uh, PSL and aligned with their ideology. Don't, we can't forget that. Uh, that um, and that Cornell uh, will be attacked by the black political class who really don't like him anyway. They don't like, I mean, their uh, dislike of Cornell goes back to his criticisms of the Obama administration. Uh, and now they're going to say that he is providing, uh, he will be a spoiler, that enough black people will vote for him in a close election, which will deny Biden uh, the presidency. Uh, so he's gonna come up under tremendous attack. On the other side, um, I suspect that organizations like DSA, the Communist Party, uh, PSL, are going to find themselves in a crisis. Um, DSA, which has hitched its wagons to the Democratic Party and AOC and Bernie Sanders, is going to have to decide if they follow Bernie in particular, into the deep night of, um, of militarism and war in supporting the Biden administration so as to block the alleged neo-fascist Trump from winning the White House. Um, I think Cornell in the race, 
will attack the, the Biden administration, as is the case with uh, Robert Kennedy and Do uh, uh, Donald Trump. This is very important. And they will do this from the standpoint of vast millions of Americans who are deeply discontented, including growing numbers of African Americans who are the political voting base of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party wins statewide in Pennsylvania because of Philadelphia, and it wins Philadelphia because of the black vote. We just had a mayoral primary, which is tantamount to the election. And under 30% of registered Democrats turned out. Over 70% did not. I'm of the opinion that between 75 and 80% of African-American voters did not vote in the last primary. It is a deep reflection of discontentedness with the political class and the black political class in particular. Those voters will either not vote for Biden, and that's not hard to do when you look at him and, and his performance, just but look at him, uh, or they might vote for one of the candidates that represent a coalition of discontented people. Uh, some polls show, and this is highly important, that uh, one third of African-American Democrats say they have a favorable attitude towards Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, I, well, let me, I'll say more in a minute about that. But the People's Party has come under attack recently. It was mentioned on Democracy Now! that an essay, an article in the New Republic attacked the leader of the People's Party because he supported Robert, he spoke positively about Robert Kennedy and Robert Kennedy Jr.'s uh, position on uh, vaccines, the pharmaceutical industry, and I think they said Ukraine. But at, that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has taken anti-establishment position. Uh, surprise, surprise. And what they're saying is that Cornell West, in accepting the People's Party platform to run on, is thereby aligning himself with forces that are anti-vaxxer, uh, allegedly anti-science, uh, and not so anti-Putin in the Ukraine. Uh, these are red lines for the ruling class. Uh, the other thing is uh, that it was brought up that Cornell West was on the Joe Rogan show. Now, Joe Rogan is defined by the mainstream media as a right-wing, uh, uh, what do you call it, race nationalist, white nationalist. Uh, and I'm not convinced that he is. 
Uh, they said that he was using the N-word on his show. Uh, uh, but what what Cornell said is that hey I you know I'm I'm meeting with everybody I, and I want a, a campaign among the Trump voters and I hope he does and if he hears them I think he will change about his attitude about them but here's the key thing that if one looks objectively. Cornell West is closer to Trump than he is to Biden on issues and on sentiments. I do not rule out, and knowing Cornell the way I do, I do not rule out a meeting between Trump and Cornell at Trump's invitation. Trump will reach out to Cornell West. And it is not out of the question that a rapprochement between Trump and Cornell is possible. And if that occurs, if that bridge is surmounted, why not Trump, Robert F. Kennedy, and Cornell West? And it can happen. But then where does that put the left? Well, out in the cold. Because the PSL, at least the way I see them, have such a deep animus towards the People's Party and its alleged move to the right to support a peace coalition that I don't think I think it will be difficult for them to join a uh, a candidacy uh, on the People's Party. I think that makes sense. As far as the DSA, and we kind of see it in their, their electoral activities here in Philadelphia. They are so bound to the Democratic Party. Uh, although here in Philly they don't contr- they're not the machine as such but they're so aligned with them that uh they're incapable of independent political action uh especially the type of bold um uh, action that Cornell is taking i think the left uh, will be left out in the cold, uh, and so on. Um, I've mentioned already the uh, black political class, uh, how they're going to come after Cornell uh, because they don't like him that much anyway, uh, and that goes back to his critiques of Obama, which were justified and correct. Um, but he'll be able to surmount it. Uh, he will not be running in the none of them, uh, uh, Trump, Cornell, or Robert F. Kennedy Jr., are going to run the same types of campaigns. They're all tremendously different. And that's not bad. Trump will run as a philosopher, as a um, uh, something like Martin Luther King, although not quite there yet. 
and and Trump and Bobby Kennedy will run kind of like who they are, anti-establishment, anti-ruling elite candidates. Uh, but in spite of the differences, their base, the, their audiences, the people who hear them like ourselves, we hear them and we welcome them. The people who will be the base of what they do will, uh, will move them further together, will push them further together. And one can only imagine all of the creative possibilities from people such as Tucker Carlson, you know, who would welcome Cornell, you know what I'm saying? People such as Tulsi Gabbard, Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, um, Dennis Kucinich, um, uh, my good friend Don DeBar, although he thinks Cornell talks too much shit. And you could, I mean, I'm not going to argue that. Um, but they could all see common ground. Uh, I guess the only, the last thing I'll just say on this point is um, the long awaited collapse of this iteration of the American left is probably before us. Uh, I don't see how they, the left, quote unquote, the Communist Party, which is communist in name only, the um, DSA and um, PSL, let us say, the, um, the, um, uh, what do you call it? the nonprofit industrial uh, complex, uh, and all of that, uh, which identifies and calls itself left, uh, cannot withstand this great movement of the people, which we'll see again, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, we'll see in either Trump, Robert F. Kennedy, or Cornell, their voice their candidate. Um, in some ways, we could call this a very radical move on the part of all three. Uh, the interesting thing, they don't seem to recognize each other yet. You know, they're, they're so involved in themselves and what they're doing that they don't, I don't think, see a bigger picture, but they will. Um, I just want to end on philosophy as politics by other means. Um, what separates Cornell from Martin Luther King is philosophy. King was more of a Hegelian and less of a neo-pragmatist. It makes a difference. Neo-pragmatism, as we said, I think last week, a couple weeks ago, is a uniquely Anglo-American philosophy which goes back 
to David Hume and John Locke. And it is rooted in the idea that freedom is actually the freedom of the individual, not the freedom of large groups of people. So if you say black liberation, a neo-pragmatist would say that black liberation means uh, providing opportunity for each individual black or create the conditions where an individual black, if she or he is so uh, is capable, can rise to the highest levels of society. Well, that's a beautiful philosophy if you're only thinking about the individual. And you know, we can see in American society where black people, black individuals are in places we never thought possible including president of the United States. And if you consider Kamala Harris black, uh, vice president of the United States, not to mention mayors and all that type of thing. But in spite of that, the education of black people, the health of black people, the futures of black people are less bright than they were 50, 60 years ago. Uh, so the bourgeois, liberal, or Anglo-Saxon idea of freedom, which is freedom for the individual, that society becomes free to the extent that individuals are free to achieve uh, whatever they can. The conflict between continental European philosophy, i.e., let us say Kant, let us say Hegel, Marx, going forward, and Anglo-American philosophy is that, ang that continental European philosophy sees the collective as the central uh, category to be understood. You read Du Bois, I mean, but he said it himself, he said he was never impressed with Anglo-American philosophy. He was obviously more influenced by German philosophy and Hegel, you know. Uh, but freedom for him, that is Du Bois, was always freedom for the group, the oppressed group. Similarly for Martin Luther King. And it is the contradiction of the group and the people, as it were, that is a contradiction I don't think Cornell can resolve within the framework of his philosophical system. Now, but then he has a backup position and that is the black prophetic tradition, which does prioritize the group, does prioritize humanity, does reject the pessimism and negativity of, uh, of Anglo-American individualism and would see as Robeson would see that the individual is free to the extent that humanity is free. Uh, and of course, thinking in these 
terms of totalities always shows a way out of the crisis. You can think of ways to move out of the crisis and the potentiality of people to resolve the crisis. Uh, Neo-pragmatism or pragmatism's concept of democracy is uh, very limited. Um, uh, we could go over this some more. I don't know whether we want to do it today. Um, but it is not the concept of the will of all. Um, Anglo-American philosophy begins with the individual will. If you go to China, if you go to Vietnam, if you go to South Africa, they begin with the category, the will of all. It is a distinct difference how you proceed. Um, Having said that, we, the free school and others, have a lot in front of us, ideologically and politically in this moment. We are more than capable. I'm, I'm really so happy to say this. I don't think there's any other way to assess, assess it. We are more than capable of understanding the complexity of this moment and providing uh, thinking that could be helpful to all sides in this great battle for democracy and peace. I'll stop there, uh, Emily. Yeah, there is a lot in there, Doc. I, I'm going to just lift up some things you said. Because, well, because I guess I'll start at the end. This thing about, this is the part that I feel like I need to think through more. But I feel like there's something really important to say. Well, first of all, just saying that Cornell West, Cornell West running just the complexities of it, or just saying like corn. I think it's, I agree with what you were saying, doc, about the significance of Cornell West running with the people's party. And this is the people's party that organized against or organized this rage against the war machine rally, um, where the main demand was both end the CIA FBI, like these intelligence committees, and also free Julian Assange and end war. And I agree with what, like, what you were saying about how it's important to, I feel like that's really important because that is what will make, that is what will open up Cornell West to a lot of attacks. But then what you're saying at the same time is that's why it's going to be important. And I agree with what you're saying about that the, there is a big, future of Trump and Cornell West in particular interacting. And Cornell West 
is closer to Trump than he is to Biden. Um, and I feel like that's really clear to us. But then the other thing that I think, to me, I think also such an important, such an important takeaway is that we in free school, we can see how what you call the crucial triad of Trump, Cornell West, RFK Jr., the way that they're emerging as like anti-establishment, but also like they could threaten, they represent the majority of the people in America who are not going to, who already have not accepted the governance of institutions. They, there's a crisis legitimacy. Like you were saying in Philadelphia, most people in the city did not vote and up to 80% of black people in Philly didn't vote, come out to vote. And so it's the American people have already completely abandoned so-called the people who so-called govern us and so here you have this crucial triad who are coming forth and offering like this alternative and i feel like that point you made that i want to underline and this goes back to cornell west is that i feel like people but i mean we see it but i feel like people need to see that what's happening is that there's already a world movement and even in america there's a movement to a, a new constitution, like we call it the Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of humanity. You said it, I think, really nicely, like a different way this time that we're recentering effect, we're re in the face of a center, the status quo that cannot hold, a ruling class that cannot govern, like there's a recentering of the foundation of humanity. And I want to go back to Cornell West because I feel like that in some ways this is an open-ended question for me, which is like that's something that, for example, Cornell West really needs to see because I think in some ways that clarifies that clarifies the strength of his attachment to the Black prophetic tradition. Like you could even see it in his interview on Democracy Now that there's the part of Cornell West emerging from the Black prophetic tradition, and he himself is conscious of that, where he's like, "I take from King." So there's a part of him that sees a spiritual crisis. I feel like in some ways, I feel like Cornell West understands that the edge of the crisis today is a spiritual crisis, but there's two ways of seeing it. There's a side, there's a way of seeing it, like there's a way of seeing it almost in like a neo-pragmatist way in some ways. Like there's a way of seeing catastrophe or crisis in a neo-pragmatist way. And for some reason, I feel like that's what leads you to also interpret Trump as an embodiment of that crisis versus there's a part of Cornell West that always goes back to King. And he would say it's a crisis of moral, like a spiritual crisis as King would say it. One that's not detached from the question of governance or democracy or the state where King would say there's a spirit, there's a spiritual crisis that can be seen in a country that leads us to war that drops bombs abroad. Like, I feel like there's a, an almost a difference in viewing that crisis. And so I feel like that was clarifying to hear you talk about the strength of the black prophetic tradition. That's Robeson, like, and that is a very non, it's not an Anglo, what is it, Anglo-American philosophy, but it's a very much, if anything, like, it's a, I don't know, it's interesting because I would, at a certain point, you also have to start like mapping Hegel like Hegelian philosophy with Afro-Asiatic philosophy, like ancient, there's there's a certain thing there where, where someone like Robeson, for example, would start, like you said, from the beginning of um, 
He would start from the beginning of the freedom of humanity. Like that is the black prophetic tradition. It's the belief that I'm only as free as humanity is free. I'm only as free as my people are free. Um, and like, that's also in some ways, like that is the, like not just spiritual, but philosophic tradition that gives so much power to the black freedom movement. And these figures who are so shaped by the knowledge and spirit of the black proletariat. Um, and yeah, and I feel like I just, I don't know, I guess I want to bring it back to that um, because deep underneath this conversation and even talking about Cornell West and how important he already is, like how important his presidential run already is with Trump and RFK and what it says about the both the crisis, but also the possibility and the future, like the possibility, but also what I feel like is already an emergence of a new American people. And the roles they're going to play in affecting their like I was telling Doc this morning that Cornell West, I think, is really important because where he goes already what he's saying, but where he's going to go in relation to Trump and RFK Jr., like the American people are just not going to be the same ever. Like their consciousness of themselves will forever be changed. And I think that's actually really and Cornell West has a role to play in that, um, which is why I think it's really important. Um, to also specify like his strengths, but also the contradictions that come from a neo-pragmatism. Like, it's just, I feel like, yeah, I think Cornel West is kind of in a dilemma that he'll have to figure out, especially as more and more people listen to him. But in some ways, the open-ended question I had was, I feel like in some ways, when you, it was really clarifying, Doc, to hear you talk about how Cornel West right now, the way he's talking, because have a neo-pragmatist philosophy is actually much more similar to Noam Chomsky. There's like that, that there's, it's whether you want to car, call it anarcho-syndicalism or libertarianism, I feel like that is also connected to why Cornell West would say, would conflate, would say, oh, all states are oppressive. You have an American empire and you have a Russian empire. And also why, for example, it's so easily to rather than see Trump as representative of a people, a discontented people, like a form, a form of like a people's movement against an oppressive ruling class. Then instead, Trump is seen as like an embodiment of like fascism, basically. Um, I feel like there's some of that is related in my mind and also why I think um, and also why it's connected to. And this thing of like the fact that neo-pragmatism really begins with a concept of the will of the individual, the idea that individual freedom is already exists within of itself. I feel like that's also connected to the weak, the weakness of Cornell West's analysis of war and peace as a central like human, as a central human um, demand, like, oh, like a world democratic demand, but also like a primary, well, I, don't, I don't know how to say it, primary like problem or contradiction in like human history that has to be faced because could, could I just just yeah, yeah. having overriding historical and political significance at this time mm -hmm. you know to get the issue of war and peace wrong is to get most other things wrong mm -hmm. and that is why Trump comes closest to getting it right because he's right on Ukraine. 
even though he has to couch it in certain ways. I want to see an end to the killing. But he would not take a pro-Zelensky right. Ukrainian regime position, uh, which is also a pro-Biden position, would not take that. And um, so, yeah, war and peace is an overriding uh, political question that unites all human beings uh, in a common fight. I forgive me. I didn't mean to talk. I just, no, that's that was really helpful because the thing that I think I'm so confused by is is basically the tension Cornell West has within himself, <laughs> which is because, for example, there's I actually read I read that article that Democracy Now highlighted that was attacking the People's Party. And that article basically what it's meant to do is to say the fact that Cornell West is running with the People's Party, even versus the Green Party, whatever, it says like the article the, on the bottom mess the bottom line message of the article is saying that means we should question Cornell West's instincts. Like that's the message. And actually, I would say that that's the one thing that makes me that's the thing that makes me trust his instincts. You know what I mean? And so there's that part where Cornel West is like, no, I'm not going to apologize for running with the People's Party. And that's the instinct. That's the instinct that's actually, I think, good. Um, that's that's the leaning, I think, of Cornel West, where he's like, we got to like, like, I think like that's the Cornel West from maybe the Black prophetic tradition that has this concept of all of us need to unite on the question of peace. Like, we need to talk to everyone. But then there's the Cornell West that at the same time, like, is kind of trapped in a certain philosophy that begins with the individual um, that I think in some ways is a little different than King. Where King, for example, would say, like, King would say that there's a spiritual crisis, like the need for a revolution of values is the very same struggle for a new civilization. Like, you know, I feel like that's where Cornell West, like, and the question of civilization is not just values. The question of civilization is also the question of democracy. Who governs? Like, and I think that's also why it's weird to call Putin a gangster because it's like, well, Putin is, Putin is not just Putin. Putin is the Russian people in a certain, like, a you know, a certain iteration of, like, the Russian people. And it's also like, I don't really know what Cornell West would say about China, for example, but it's, so I don't know. That's, that's kind of where I'm at, but I, I do think for me, it's just a really exciting, like, I was just really excited to um, also see what people are saying about Cornell West um, and see the way, like you said, doc, Trump's, this is amidst Trump's indictment and federal indictment and showing the desperation of a ruling class that knows they're completely fucked and they cannot govern. And that's also why I think, again, like this is where I think Cornell West, like I wished he like saw that context. I guess it was happening after his interviews, but there's a, there's a very important context here. Um, oh, shoot. There's something else I want to say about Trump. Yeah. And just just this thing of like, I want to go back like one last time. I just want to say that like this relates also to our event next week because it's just it's becoming clearer and clearer that we are not just saying that the center cannot hold. 
but we're also saying that there's a recentering happening. Like, you know, it's like we're saying there's a recentering happening. And here we have a crucial triad that's actually, whether they know it or not, <laughs> they are part of a recentering, a worldwide recentering that America has a possibility of being a part of. And it's an Afro-Asiatic recentering. It's a one that starts with the idea of an individual cannot be free unless everyone is free. And yeah, and, and um, that the enemy is the like the enemy is the same system that colonized the world that like introduced imperialism, all this stuff. But I feel like I talked too much. But yeah, I don't know. That's it was just it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, Oh, I was going to say something. Um, yeah, I guess um, this idea of neo-pragmatism and this sort of centering of the individual um, and putting the community in the background, so to speak, pacifizing or, or um, yeah, believing that the group is passive in this way. Um, I feel like that's, I don't know, I, I think of Cornel West, how he depicts China and Russia and the Soviet Union um, and, and this idea of dictatorship in a, in a passive way, like the people can only be dictated to from one singular person. You can only go to your, your, your job and be dictated to by your boss. It's very hard to conceive of a dictatorship being an actor and, you know, an agent of change. Um, and of course, if you see yourself, um, you know, if you see the people passive, you're going to see the individual passive because we're just individuals of a larger group of people. Um, and so in many, in many respects, this recentering the way I see it, like, um, I guess, um, um, philosophically is, you know, recentering our understanding of the individual in the, in the greater collective. Um, yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's, that's how at least I see uh, Cornel West uh, and his inability to see the Chinese people or the Russian people as agents of their own democracy. Um, and it's only just Putin or maybe Xi dictating from above. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, it's, it's part of the, you know, the, what we understand from American history is the inability to see the black worker. You know, it was just Lincoln who signed the, the Emancipation Proclamation and, you know, um, it's, yeah, a recentering of the agency of mankind, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Um, like you're saying, this is one of his uh, fundamental uh, weaknesses philosophically, that if he wants all of this change that he'd like to happen, or even what the black proletariat or the black radical tradition and the Kingian tradition would so, you know, prophetically lay out or believe so much in the capacity and the people, the black proletariat and the civil war, like he's so handicapped by this, assumption with that brings him to this notion of fascism like these empires are just like and then these leaders are just gangsters, and then also people are just to be dictated to like somehow he has this weird conception of what human human like human agency really is or what human capacity is both capable of but also limited by the pragmatism or this sort of like yeah i mean like yeah. just the belief in the individual uh, yeah. being the yeah. essential idea of freedom is a mm -hmm. passive idea of freedom. Yeah. That is like, I can only change what's in my house, <laughs> you know, in my individual life. And that's the only way I can conceive of freedom. It's a very limiting sense of freedom. Um, and it, it puts the mass of people in the background, which is just as we, as we think of history is just 
a misunderstanding of, you know, what is it, um, you know, missing the forest for the trees. That's what they say. Um, and of course, you know, it's, it's brilliant that he's then, even, even with this idea of pragmatism, he's doing a very politically in non-pragmatic thing, at least yeah. in American politics, by going into the People's Party. Like, you would think if he was neo-pragmatist about this, he would, okay, I'm going to go through the right channels, you know. Um, so just the fact that he's willing to put himself out there um, shows that there is some, there's some, there's dissonance that, like you were saying, Tony, could, could lead him potentially. I, I have my own doubts that that, that might be possible with, with uh, Trump, just the way he's described Trump. Um, but I was listening to an interview with RFK and they were saying, you know, are you going to support Biden? And he says, I don't think I could support uh, someone who supports the war. And they're like, oh, wow, you know, that's we don't hear that very often. And then they're like, well, wait a minute, doesn't that mean you could then support Trump? And he kind of stuttered a little bit in answering this. He was like, well, you know, I I uh, I think our styles are just too different. Something to that effect, which is like, is that is that really like a an honest way to, to uh, answer that question? Because it seemed like he in that question, he wasn't really sure how to answer it, um, but he didn't want to align himself with Trump. That's knee-jerk knee reaction, but but I do think there's much more of a possibility there. You know, just to add on to what you're saying, Emil, the, that also I also felt that was a problem in the way he was characterizing Trump voters. I mean, for all like I mean, I thought it was like he said, "No, we're going to go there." They're also catching hell, but I won't tolerate any xenophobia or this or that, and. You know, the, but the thing is, the fact that he's rejecting this thing of saying these are all fascists and saying, I want to engage with people out of a sense of love, you know, but also what have these people done in throwing this massive wrench into the right, machine right. through the Trump election? And what does it really mean? What is it really about? Um, but also, I mean, just knowing the kind of person he is, the generosity and just the honesty. I, I remember we said this a while ago is can we learn something from is it always it's not one way we can learn something from people mm -hmm. and there's something to be learned so this is really a process and a very uh important one at this time in history um and the other thing i just wanted to say about cornell that i think is so important on the thing of peace in all my life observing american politics i've never heard someone say precious libyan sisters precious iraqi brothers and sisters i mean that's a black man. I only hear black people talk like that. Right. And for him to bring that into the mainstream political discourse is so powerful and beautiful and moving. Uh, and just in general, the way he's raising the discourse and opening it, I think it, it means something for people to hear that honesty of, oh, like, why did you have Joe Rogan? And he doesn't give a politic calculated political response. He gives an honest one of saying, this is about building something and uh, an educating kind of response. So I, I just really appreciated that. But I mean, the way that the free school, especially Doc, has uh, clarified the contradictions and all of this, you have to understand all of this in such a dialectical uh, way that's moving now. You cannot understand anything as static or I'm aligning with this or that. You have to watch the process right, unfold right, right. Uh, and give whatever you can to that process. Yeah, um, I would like to say, well, first, you know, it's interesting on the uh, the me the mainstream media attacking Joe Rogan is purely out of jealousy and out of the fact that they can no longer control the narrative. Because to give an ex a very staggering statistic, Anderson Cooper's show on CNN 
averages like about uh, a little over 200,000 viewers. I think maximum 300,000 viewers a night. Joe Rogan's one episode, which sometimes is like two or three hours, is 11 million people listen to each episode. I mean, and uh, another example, uh, Tucker's new Twitter show, he had 82 million people watch his 10-minute segment where he denounced, he was criticizing the Ukraine war and Zelensky, which is interestingly double the amount he was getting on Fox News as well. Um, but, I mean, it's showing, and, you know, with Cornell West and RFK, there, and even I think to a large extent Trump, uh, their entire media thing has been on these podcasts and social alternative media, which this alternative media is getting more viewers than mainstream media. That's part of the what's happening among the people. And as, as Doc said, these three candidates, it shows that it's not about uh, Trump, the individual in 2016. This is a phenomenon among the people. And it, it does increasingly look like among the majority uh, of the people. And, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with Emily's uh, characterization. That was very well put that they, you're seeing. I mean, you're seeing Cornell West intention, you know, and I think, yeah, we should definitely be at this point. We should be have honest uh, critiques, but also be optimistic about the fact that this entire process is in motion. What it, What's exciting is that this is really the first time uh, in my lifetime, probably everybody's lifetime here, that there's been a great democratic debate, possibility of a great democratic debate, all these, you know, black prophetic tradition, neo-pragmatism, America first, uh, critique the deep state, even debate, you can even debate big pharma, which is RFK's great contribution. Now even Trump is talking about, oh, since the 80s, there's a huge increase in chronic illnesses because of big pharma. You know, it's like things which, you, you, there's a real debate. It's no longer that you know, manufactured, easily uh, controlled uh, presidential elections that you've seen um, in the past. So I think that's a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, Cornel West also, I, I share some of, I think, what Emil was saying, some uh, a critique of the, also the fact that he's like, this thing of catastrophe, I think it is different from crisis, right? I mean, I'm trying mm. to understand. I think it's neo-pragmatism, I guess, probably some existentialism he's bringing in as well. But he's talking about catastrophe. And I think there are limitations to that framework that I'm trying to understand. I mean, I think it's individual. I think it's kind of static to talk about, oh, this is a catastrophe, you know, whether it's a fascist catastrophe or neoliberal catastrophe. Um, and then you, you currently there is, does sound like there's a lesser evil thing kind of possible there where he's like, oh, fascist catastrophe is worse than neoliberal milk catastrophe, milk toast neoliberal <laughs> catastrophe. But uh, we'll see, I mean, as this uh, process unfolds. Uh, versus, you know, as we discussed, we talk about crisis, revolutionaries talk about crisis, Lenin talked about crisis, even King, as we were saying, talked about a crisis, and crisis is a dynamic thing, it means that you can resolve the crisis, you know, the collective can move forward, um, and uh, so anyway, that that's on the table, this whole thing is, a, is in crisis, and uh, lastly, uh, this thing about the it's actually a very, I agree also with Emily, the, the instinct about going with the People's Party. And he is also a founder of the People's Party in 2020, he was saying, versus the Green Party. And, you know, I'm very, lately very, very disappointed with things I'm seeing from the Green Party because their presidential candidate in 2020 is basically openly supporting the Ukraine and the war and U.S. support to Ukraine. So I, it no longer seems like it's really an alternative party in that sense. They may be... If they continue along this road, they'll be to the right of even Trump or RFK or Cornell West. So 
Uh, people are saying, oh, People's Party doesn't have ballot access and states, blah, blah. But those are all technical things that they can work through. But I'm also, I think it's a very positive thing that the People's Party has this vision, Rage Against the War Machine, this vision of coalitions. I think Free School was totally right about Rage Against the War Machine because I'm seeing this triad emerging is basically exactly the same forces that were at uh, Rage Against the War Machine. So overall, it's yeah, it's an exciting time. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, because so, so no, so no one beats you. <laughs> uh, something that this is this conversation has been really helpful because I think originally I didn't know how to make sense of Cornell West because I didn't, and I think the reason why I didn't know how to make sense of it was that you see two parallel trends one is the neo pragmatism, and the other is the black prophetic tradition. And I didn't know how to make sense of like how the two can exist simultaneously within someone like Cornell. But the other thing that stood out to me or reminded me of is as we're talking about the festival, there is something to be that we're emphasizing with Robeson is that there is a science to, there's a science to human movement, um, specifically that meaning like not everyone coming out as a presidential or of the three, they're not going to be perfect in their ideas. But what is it that we must, that is the most critical or important? And I think there's something about the three of them, which is that they do in some, in represent different factions of American people um, and sometimes overlapping like parts of, Amer uh, of the American people. And the reason why I say that is because like through the lives of, um, Elijah Muhammad and particularly Robeson in this case that I'm thinking of is that so as long as you're rooted in the people then you'll also be connected to the people of the world and the reason why I say that is because you know like for someone like RFK Jr. or someone like Cornell West or even someone like um, Trump they might not have the exact like the reasons that we talk about in free school for opposing war um, like there's I think different degrees of like whether Trump or not Trump, uh, Putin is a fascist or not, but something that they're clear is that the people that they re represent don't want war. For whatever reason, they don't want war. And they, despite seeing like Putin as a fascist or whatever it is, they have to move in the direction of we're not gonna, like at minimum, we're not gonna have war. And I think so as long as, and I think that's the piece, which is that if that is the first condition, then it allows you actually to broaden what that actually means, specifically in the tradition of like Robeson, where he is able to connect the U.S. Um, people to the people of the world and actually see the people of the world. Um, and I say that as like really, I think in the event, like what what's also really exciting is that you know we're looking at figures like Robeson, King, Elijah Muhammad as a specific moment in history. And we're trying to apply their ideas and their science and philosophy to our times. And this pres presidential election or this formation that's happening mm -hmm. gives us a really concrete example or a present day example of how people are moving and how things are um, responding to one another. And, um, and I think particularly with the candidates, like something that like RFK Jr., like there's different positions and sometimes it's not always like I'm always there with them on, but something I'll always remember 
is how in his announcement speech, he talked about the legacy of King and his uncle and his father and how for his father, his father would often bring him to the poorest like white mm. countries in the country. And he would tell RFK Jr. like these people, they're the Kennedy people. And so like, what does that, that does, I think that is something that's really significant, which is that these three individuals, like I think people who will, cause even in the announcement speech, there are many Trump voters in the comment section saying, you mm. know, I wouldn't vote for a Democrat, but I, I'd vote for RFK Jr. because of his ideas, because of what he's saying. Um, and I think these people, like one, them representing the people or different parts of American society and, um, and then going into what Johanna is saying or Meghna or everyone else has been saying, as long as there's a debate, as long as they're actually, or as long as they're representing the people, as long as they're debating and talking to one another, they'll change in that process. Like I'm really excited uh, for them to engage with one another. Like what would they say to each other? Um, in the lead up. Yeah. Uh, Eddie, did you want to go? Not, not yet, not yet. I'm still thinking. He's not even talking to me. That's okay. Uh, sorry, Surf. Yeah, you should go ahead, Surf. Go ahead. Oh, it's no big deal. Um, I was just thinking that RFK Jr., he has a bit with the Democratic Party. Like, isn't that why he said he was running on the Democratic ticket? So like, I thought maybe I'm, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I thought that he wanted to specifically go against the Democrats. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But my whole, I, I was just whispering to Doc, cause I was, I don't know why Cornell decided to run. So. Yeah. Anybody else knows, or if anybody else, if he said anything yet on that decision? No. Um. Well, I don't. I don't have any super specific information. I don't. From his perspective, I don't know. But I know the People's Party, which he was a founder of, like they in the last election tried to convince Bernie to run as their candidate, and obviously he rejected them. And now. They're basically over Bernie. They're kind of pretty critical of Bernie now, and so I think my sense, at least, is that I, they were looking for somebody to represent them. And I would assume or guess that they had some conversation with Cornell West, and that he. I'm also interested in why you know all of a sudden he decided to take this on, but uh, I don't. I mean, you know, this bigger force is the People's Party. I think that they're they are have they have some vision of we need to build like a left wing independent poll in politics and we can no longer rely on um, the two parties. And previously I've actually heard some interviews, even in 2020 with the, the head of the people's party, this guy, Nick Brana, And he even talked about the election of 1860 and how the Republic then Republican party was a new party and uh, on the stage and how that was so important for, you know, ending slavery and reconstruction and, all of that stuff to have this independent we can no longer just assume that always it has to be these two parties and that they're they're kind of out of date so that's what i could say from the people's party perspective go for it. yeah all right i the, the thoughts are collected that gave me some more to work with uh so it's it's really um, uh, if i'm not mistaken the people's party uh from what we saw in the uh 
uh, Rage Against the War Machine rally was largely uh, white constituted, not exclusive, but this was the kind of people that were uh, attracted to the to that delivery of the message of peace. And uh, a lot of this really reminds me of the of this uh, essay we read by Robeson called uh, Primitives, where he drew the distinction between like the primitive man, like you could say like the natural order of things and the Western way, which uh, uh, is useful, but has become uh, unnatural and even mm -hmm. an obstacle. Uh, he says, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the primitive man thinks in concrete symbols. You know, if you think of something that's good, you look at a woman and child and be like, that's good. And the, uh, the Western man gets caught up in all of these uh, abstractions that make you lose mm -hmm. a sense of reality and, and drive you into like a deep, dark place. Uh, and uh, I kind of think it's, it's really interesting to see Cornell West, uh, I feel in some kind of ways, manifest you know uh, the, the the black tradition uh, and you could say you know the the primitive way uh, uh i wish there was a better word that made it sound cooler but i'm just using the vocabulary in the essay and then the neo-pragmatist way which takes you in somewhere that is a little uh 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 in some ways to me it feels like uh, it's his weakness it's it's where he he uh, falls short mm -hmm. of the moment and uh the, the full possibilities uh and uh it's, it's amazing to see uh, so many uh, white people that have uh, otherwise people might have thought have been your enemies and are obstacles to progress uh, move in this direction toward uh, with the rest of humanity. Uh, and when I think of this, you know, an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution, I think of the idea of primitives and that there, there, there's this uh, natural order of things, the, the way we're supposed to relate to one another and think uh, that is... Uh, the pro it's really the property of humanity. Even even we see white people uh, uh, shifting in, in this direction with the idea of a collective sense of freedom as opposed to an individual sense of freedom. Uh, uh, and uh, although uh, uh, we, we've made a break from it, it's it's natural, but it's the property of all of us, and so we can we can come back to to this. Uh, and uh, the the gift the, that we have from uh, Afro Asia. Is that they've advanced uh, these ideals and these struggles, uh, and we can, and all of us can help take up the mantle. Uh, and so I believe in all human beings uh, and in this country uh, to to be a part of it. And seeing an RFK Jr. and a Trump and their the people that they represent uh, 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 as as the the manifestation of this uh, shift. Yeah. I just wanted to build on what people have been saying about the election stuff, because I think something that I've been learning through the past couple of weeks of free school, especially since the Philly primary election, is that in different stages of history, also basically in different stages of America's history, elections have meant different things. They have different kinds of significance. And I think something that has stood out to me in seeing the response to the respective elections of Trump, RFK Jr. and Cornell West is you'll often see people in the comments saying, protect this man at all costs. But they say that because they are very aware and basically also afraid that the ruling class will not only try to silence each of these three candidates, but that they're in danger of assassination. And why do they say that? They say that because of the previous experience of the assassinations of King, 
of JFK, of RF, like the first RFK. And I think that in the same way that we're talking about viewing this overall upcoming election as what will the American, what will the American people experience through this process? What will they listen, like what will they hear and what will they learn from it? This is also coming out of the lessons that have been learned, that the American people have learned from basically the generation of the civil rights movement in which I think, yeah, I think RFK Jr. has mentioned this, but that like basically once you saw the assassinations of, of JFK, Malcolm X, like okay. Ed Medgar Evers, MLK, and then RFK, like the first RFK, that basically popular trust in the government plummeted. Like this was the beginning of what we see now as the crisis of legitimacy. And I think something that I guess has been, was really clarifying for me in terms of our discussion today is that each of these three candidates in their totality represents more than it's like the sum like basically that each of them in totality represents more than just who they are as individuals like if you were to just add them up as like one plus one plus one it's more than three if that makes sense like that's the point of seeing them as the triad like together they represent more more than even than they themselves see in the like see their own significance as individuals and what we see in them as individuals and i think something that i've been thinking about a lot um that we've been talking about in free school is that we are living in a period of america's history in which the possibilities that were either imminent or created by king and the civil rights movement we are living in a period of history in which those possibilities are coming into fruition. We're living in a world made possible by the achievements and the breakthroughs of the civil rights movement. And each of, in their own way, each of these three candidates represents one facet of those kinds of possibilities which were created by the civil rights movement. And I think that, yeah, I, 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 think, I think this has been brought up before, but that I think Doc had made a point a few, maybe a few months ago that whether Trump recognizes it or not, Trump was made possible by King, right? And I think that that, for people who heard that, maybe even for me, I was like, oh, I wasn't entirely sure what to think of that. But then you think about it in terms of Trump basically was a shock to the American political system. And Trump also basically, I think, made possible the emergence of someone like um, RFK Jr., right? And RFK Jr. much more clearly concretely represents the legacy going back to his father, his uncle, and King, basically. And then you have the emergence of someone like Cornel West, who even more clearly represents the legacy of the Black Freedom Movement. But all three of them are connected. They're not, like, they're not separate things, but they are part of the same overall total historical phenomenon in American history, like where we are right now. And I think that, yeah, I just agree with everyone in that the possibility of this upcoming election see like this upcoming election cycle is what do these three what do these three candidates represent in terms of their to like the totality of it and not just each of them as like individuals and what are the possibilities that can happen when not just these three men but the yeah the respective bases of people in the american population that they can speak to what happens when you bring those different constituencies of people together like what will actually be produced out of that. And that's something that which is greater than I think any of these three candidates can even foresee for themselves and their own 
respective, I guess, bids for the presidency. Um, but yeah, like I think the other interesting thing that I guess I noticed from the Cornell West interview with Democracy Now! is the first, yeah, the first thing he said is that I'm running for president as an act of desperation. <laughs> and I think that that is part of the kind of existential neo-pragmatist thing where, yeah, he sees in terms of the category of catastrophe when I feel like actually the interesting thing is both, I feel like both RFK Jr. and Trump would not phrase things in terms of necessarily the catastrophe, but more in terms of, and I feel like actually RFK Jr. represents this more, the most um, clearly, which is there are, there are new possibilities in this moment. And like RFK Jr.'s whole thing is we need to heal the divide amongst the American people. And like, that's very much, yeah, trying to draw from also the legacy of basically the Black Freedom Movement and America's Third Revolution. Um, but yeah, I just feel like it's important to think about this as people have been saying like dialectically and in terms of totalities and not just in terms of, I feel like how also the ruling class tries to frame elections, which is basically just purely a contest of personalities when it's more about what do the people regardless of whoever, even who wins the election, what do the people learn through this experience? Like what are the new possibilities that are created through this overall political process, which is much greater than just whoever gets elected, but is more about, yeah, like what does this mean in the terms of the overall political crisis in America as a whole? Um, yeah. Maybe I, I, I just want to add one small thing. I agree with everybody. And, you know, all of this was very clarifying because when somebody like Cornell West um, decides to run for president of the United States, it's, 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 like, it's, a, it's, shock, it's like a shock to your system because I don't know, personally, this is something that I would not have ever, I wouldn't have been able to imagine it out of my, you know, my own capacity. But then you know, about these contradictions that, you know, was very clarifyingly discussed today. I'm also like feeling hopeful because even Trump, when he started out in 2016, I mean, you compare Trump today to what he was in 2016, and he's basically become so much more radical than he used to be, where he can face the American people and say, I am your retribution, you know, and we could expect, we could like, you know, it's, it wouldn't be unimaginable to expect that just this process of representing the people of America, being in the run as a representative of the people of America would make Cornel West change his rhetoric in some ways and you know take more of a of more even change his philosophical uh, groundings in some ways to more fit more accurately fit this moment. But I was also thinking what it means for a public intellectual to even run for office in this country. You know this idea that you know you're an academic you're an intellectual but you have a stake in what happens to this nation and to the american people it won't be decided just by career pol politicians and i think this was also in some ways what trump brought in when he first came in because he wasn't a career politician but now cornell west is a whole different game because you know he's not just an intellectual and an academic he's one that's one that you can place in the black radical tradition and the black prophetic tradition. And I feel like, you know, just listening to some analysis by white leftists on what Cornell West running means, I think they have it completely wrong because in some ways I feel like they're still hung up on the Bernie movement and want to sort of situate 
uh, Cornell West running for president within that narrow framework of bringing socialism to America. But that's that's completely wrong. That's not where he's situated. He's actually situated with King and the civil rights movement. And the possibilities if developed are just so great that, you know, they're, they're massive. Yeah, I just wanted mm -hmm. to add that. Also, the last point I want to make is basically this represents to intellectuals and academics that there is a choice one could make where you don't care just about, you know, okay, your career or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. basically being stooges for the ruling class, but you can make this choice that, you know, I'm going to put everything on the line. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, well, like, I think, like, you know, what you said, it was really uh, clarifying. Also, I was actually thinking about from, like, what Jeremiah was saying. I think this is a, like, you know, this sort of arc that we're trying to draw with the three of them. I think it's really clarifying and in terms of um in terms of i was thinking in terms of like you know what are these like you know possible changes in the way like you know the way cornell west sees all of this how how you know that has to evolve and yes i mean you know we are still a year and a half away from the actual election and like you know, things change uh I think in much shorter time scales also. So like, you know, there's a lot of reason to feel hopeful to I echo the sentiment. But in terms of, you know, this this question of the, the philosophical assumption that, you know, Doc you brought out about neo-pragmatism and what people have talked about after, I was thinking how uh, like as a like as a political philosophy, it seems to um, you know not have an analysis of the economy. And this is like in the sense that like you know when we talk about uh, like 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 the place that Cornell West comes from I mean yes you know he is talking about how the ruling class has abandoned the people and the fact that it like you know the fact that you know his his movement is basically trying to get closer to the working people of America the working class of America but at the same time I feel like the way we are seeing it the connection between Trump and RFK and Cornell West um, you know, it's really based on an understanding of war and war economy and peace economy. And I feel like this is one of the things that like really strongly holds, uh, like, you know, um, sort of ties these people together. And this question of, yeah, what the, like, you know, how the left sees or fails to see it, I sort of, I think it's, it's a confusion that I probably have, but it seems that, you know, there are two sides to it. On the one hand, like, you know, the left sees it in like, you know, solely in terms of, you know, like what socialism means in America today. Like, it's not simply a question of the crisis of socialism and, you know, how to, like, you know, how to build socialism today. I think that's sort of, uh, like, you know, what makes, uh, like, a part of the left think of Cornell West in the same way as they think of Bernie Sanders. And, you know, this connection that Purva was mentioning. On the other hand, like a part of the left, I guess the cultural left that, you know, that sees it, like that really has no analysis of the economy and, and, and you know, questions of war and war economy. And for that, like, you know, it, like it really can't understand this connection. It really can't see the possibility of, you know, Cornell West and Trump and RFK coming together. And yeah, I, I think it's really like what Jeremiah was saying that, you know, all of these people really represent something much bigger than themselves like their ideas are connected to the history of like to the history of america to the history of the last hundred years the civil rights movement i think going 
back to this really uh, like ties them together. And you know, it also shows like the possibilities that you are seeing. I think yeah, this idea that you know, Trump is going to reach out uh, in terms of you know understanding Cornell West and like these people coming together, it's it's really shocking. It's 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 really shocking for me to think about it. Like you know, five years back, it's not something that uh, like people usually have in the bounds of their imagination at this point. And this shows, uh, like you know, the the sort of constant you know dumbing down that the ruling class has done in terms of the possibilities of the American people. Yeah, that's all I want. Yeah, I just wanted to also just um, say that I'm grateful for this conversation because when I watched the Democracy Now! interview with Cornell West, um, I think I felt highs and then I felt lows and then I felt highs and then I felt lows. <laughs> and, and now I can sort of establish a baseline uh, with... <laughs> upon which I can I can sort of try and understand why I felt certain ways um, because I was really I was really confused when he was uh, he was talking about the Biden uh, about Biden being the reason for mass incarceration of black people but then you can't relate uh, war in the world to the Biden administration or to Biden himself so I think this conversation really helped clarify why he thinks about one thing a certain way, but does not think about, you know, the holistic idea of uh, world peace in, in, in the same light. Um, and then the other thing that I was thinking about, like from the very beginning of uh, our conversation about Trump's indictment, is that I think the ruling class has become extremely complacent and they think that with the use of media and uh, with the use of their enormous wealth and power, they can just influence the way that people can people think. But I think that they are they severely severely underestimate the consciousness of the people. Yes. These these people who have um, who have people like King as their you know forerunners who've given them that way of thinking, who've given them the ability to think for themselves. And I think that the current ruling class underestimates these people. They think that they can't think, if we just plant the narrative, they'll believe it. But that's not true, as we can see with the Trump movement. They are rejecting everything that the ruling class puts in front of them. And you know, Trump has been under attack for so long so, and uh, in so many different ways, they tried to impeach him. And let's not forget about that. Um, and I think Robert F. Kennedy is going to come under a similar kind of attack because this this almost a kind of coalition that's forming between these three people who are anti-establishment and for the people and for peace I don't think the ruling the ruling class is going to get desperate, and they already have become desperate. And you know, I was talking to uh, Neha the other day, and she was telling me about how John F. Kennedy is coming under character assassinations uh, on Twitter. And I was like, okay, it has begun. Uh, so I think that even after all of these things, I believe that the people are going to. Uh, not fall for this. They're not going to fall for this 
over and over again. I think they have a very heightened political consciousness, which is going to take them to the correct conclusions. And I think the free school does this. Like we, we, we uplift the good, and then we criticize what we think is supposed to be criticized, but we never take away from that revolutionary spirit. Um, and this is absolutely unrelated, but I have to say this, that RFK's criticism of the pharma industries is absolutely justified. Oh, Having worked in close association with pharma companies for the last five years, I can say that what the decisions that they make are, a cri are crimes against humanity. And whatever RFK is saying to be critical of the of big pharma, not just in terms of or they're taking a lot of money. The kind of decisions that they make uh, are just are anti-human. That's right. That's they're anti-human. They, uh, they, they you you can't think that way if you want to be a part of the human race. Yeah. But thank you, everyone. Yeah. I real quickly this conversation. Uh, I think it's really clarifying how we're talking about how all three of these candidates are outside of the mainstream and in their own way are tapping into the coalition of discontent and all three are making uh, the coalition of discontent uh, their base. Um, but I've been thinking about uh, Cornell West's weak point, as you said, you know, Doc, earlier, how he, you could link him to Noam Chomsky or Bernie Sanders. And I've been thinking about the American left's uh, weak point and it reminded me of something I heard a long time ago, that uh, America is so anti-communist that even the communists are anti-communists, in that uh, you have American communists who, if they, given the option, because of all the, uh, the pressure in society not to support uh, actually uh, other countries building socialism, uh, that they would rather take a more critical road. So sometimes you'll hear people say uh, uh, they critically accept China or um, this China is revisionist or this country is revisionist. And there's a lot of debate, but like Johnson says, they don't take the good uh, with the bad. And I actually met a French professor and I was talking to him one time and he said he, you know, he came to New York and attended a socialist party meeting. And he said that, uh, you know, Americans don't understand fascism. And that's true, not just Americans, I'm talking about the American left. American socialists don't understand fascism because unlike Europeans, they didn't actually see World War II and fight it. And uh, there's a, a law, there's you know something called Godwin's Law, which says that every argument will eventually break down into both people calling the other side Nazis. And, um, Basically, what I'm trying to say is socialists, they inherit the chauvinisms of their home country, and American socialists have inherited an American exceptionalist chauvinism, uh, and sometimes it uh, expresses itself in a way where other countries, especially the BRICS countries, the developing countries, can't decide their own path. Whether or not you agree with it, you can at least say that they have the right to decide their own destiny. And that's that's key to uh, internationalism. 
because you can't have a world government or world cooperation without everybody coming to the uh, coming to the table uh, willingly and with equal respect to make their decisions. And that's the weakness of Chomsky and Bernie Sanders and Cornell West because uh, they don't uh, respect, they, they are American chauvinists because they don't respect other countries' uh, decisions to go an independent path or to not go uh, an American determined path. And um, yeah. Um, I guess I wanted to mention something about um, the idea of a peace economy and talk about like the different strengths of each candidate that could um, go into that. So when I guess that idea of a peace economy was mentioned, I had thought of Trump's idea of make America great again um, mm. and how that is essentially like the idea for the reindustrialization of America, but um, needing the philosophical um, backing of like uh, a Cornell West with like the single garment of destiny and respect um, and appreciation of humanity. Um, and I guess one thing about, um, I guess Cornell West that I'm trying to I guess that that he could need or that could get sharpened in these debates is um yeah the idea of like american imperialism and i'm not sure which candidate is putting that forward at the moment if mm -hmm. any um but that central idea um that also is affecting like yeah the american economy but um you know yeah i i guess just trying to understand how all these candidates are gonna be sharpened because like Trump, for example, he he speaks about Putin with respect. You know, he's spoken about Kim Jong-un with, with respect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's called them very mm -hmm. intelligent people and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. But yeah, I guess just there being that um, philosophy missing about the respect and understanding uh, of world humanity. So um, yeah. It would be, I feel like in the coming, um, I guess, year, like the American people are probably going to like, I guess the intelligence or the conscious or whatever is going to like shoot through the moon because it's going to be a lot of these ideas on the table, not just with what the presidents are debating, but with how Americans want to situate themselves in the world and among each other, because those are the ideas that are on the table at the moment. You know, that whole idea of um, like whether whether it's positively or negatively um, thought of in the media about the collapse of America, it's no longer like up for debate, like that's already on the table. Right. And so um, mm -hmm. that just leaves a lot on the table for people to work out. And yeah, I just feel like it's going to be a very whoever wins or whatnot. I'm not sure who I want to vote for yet, to be honest. <laughs> but, um, you know, yeah, I think that um, through this coming year, a lot of things, the candidates are going to be sharpened and, you know, it's going to be a very interesting year mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah, yeah. well, oh, sorry, listen. 
No. Well, I also just wanted to add that I do think the way that we've been talking about the, the rising of this new crucial triad, it does justify, I think Emily, you had mentioned this, the new American people or this new American consciousness and this new American future. And I like how in our conversation, and someone had said this as well, we're also talking about how, I think Alice had mentioned this, how each of the three candidates represents a certain faction or sociological category of American people. And in, in each of these categories is a very, very dynamic representation of reality and also the future, because we're getting a sense of what people believe, their values, but definitely their contradictions and their aspirations. And so like hearing what everyone was contributing about different candidates was so fascinating and valuable to me because I didn't know that much about any of the candidates, but I do just want to add that I find RFK Jr. really interesting in particular. And I also like what Shantanu had mentioned about what he sees about the pharma industry because RFK actually, when I listened to his speech where he announced his candidacy a couple of weeks ago, I remember I actually cried when I heard it and it was such like an emotional reaction to me because it felt like the restoration of the most like principled version of a certain American tradition that actually isn't so far removed from our memory or from our history. And I think Jeremiah had mentioned this in like a reading group sometime, but he also linked it to the civil rights movement or like very, very hand in hand with the way that the civil rights movement changed American consciousness and RFK coming out of that in some ways. But what I actually like about RFK is it's also interesting to me that he does situate himself a lot in the environmentalist arena and how when he talks about his political background, I think he talks about how he worked in environmental litigation for most of his life. And from how I interpreted how he describes his own arc, he basically talks about how he just saw more and more like egregious, you know, unfair manipulation of the government against the people that eventually like it pushed him into politics, like he got pushed up as a leader, but he never began his journey, you know, like wanting to go into politics per se. And I think that I find that really similar. Like I see that parallel with Trump as well. And even to some extent as Cornell, where they each talk, talk as themselves representing what they've seen in America. And they speak like with an honest interpretation of reality and also an honest interpretation of what the future can be and none of them like none of them speak as politicians for example the way that all of the philadelphia mayoral candidates spoke you did not get a single candidate that really talked like any of the crucial triad and that's really interesting but back to like rfk also being an environmentalist i do think that because the environmentalist activist path has been so viable like in the past decade for young people i think they have a lot to actually learn from a candidate like rfk because for him the environmental question is a deeply 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 humanist question which i think also explains why he's moving in the direction of feeling so responsible to the fate of america now and i think eventually it will lead him to an analysis of imperialism and war if it isn't already but i do think that's very absent in the way that a lot of younger activists talk about the environmental problem or the environmental question. And then the last thing I wanted to bring up was in RFK's candidacy speech, something he brought up was how when he was growing up, 
And I think this is actually what made me cry. He was talking about how big of a shock it was to the American people when they found for the very first time that through the Vietnam War and then the, the subsequent assassinations of like JFK, for example, the American people found for the first time that they were being lied to by their own government and that something broke and something changed forever. And I think that historical piece is really, really important and I'm still trying to understand it. But I think I'm also trying to understand when and how our iteration of the ruling elite as it is like developed and what it means because I think a couple people had mentioned that what is so egregious about the ruling elite right now or the leadership of the Democratic Party right now, like the Democratic machine is that they don't have this basic, basic thing of like, we have faith in the American people and we believe that the American people are intelligent, like conscious, responsible agents who can choose what they believe, who can participate in democracy. And from what RFK described, like seeing, you know, he was seeing, he was educated and trained in a very different idea of American democracy that he still believes like must be corrected and must be restored. And to me, it just sounds like it's our ruling elite is the most, his, like the most vicious in American history, like the most egregious, the most outrageous. And so the correction will also be the greatest, I think when it is negated, and but I am like trying to wrap my head about around how it was allowed to arise and how it was designed um, because it wasn't that long ago as well. So, yeah. Yeah, actually, I was thinking about our discussion that we had about Cornelius. Like, I don't know why we were talking about his philosophy like a month ago, was it? Yeah, yeah, not quite a month, but yeah, something A little like bit that. less. Yeah, we went to hear him give a lecture. Yeah. What was the lecture on again? Um, just his philosophy. Oh, right, he yeah. came to Philly. Yeah, right, he came to Philly, he was at University of Pennsylvania. Oh, and, and just this idea about the catastrophe, and then we talked about his, um, his uh, you know, the things that he's missing, but also what time he emerged out of, like the 80s, um, late 70s, mm -hmm. the, the position or state of the civil rights movement, how there was a new generation and what they knew of or acknowledged of in King or even respected and admired of King or the lack thereof of the civil rights movement period. Um, and that like even like well, how did Cornell West emerge anyway? Um, I thought that was interesting that we had discussed it. Um, and also to your point, in what way does um, the government that we're now, what are you guys, okay, okay. Um, the government that uh, we are now uh, seeing in decline and that has emerged out of, a, in a similar time, like after the civil rights movement or like the COINTELPRO, the FBI, even like the declassified um, file or the classified files or even the way in which the government um, apparatus designs itself 
upon attacking the American people ideologically, philosophically, right. 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 and its people, mm -hmm. like so, totally trying to submerge a king to be able to produce again or be able to emerge again. Um, and that the time that we're in is like, well, like after the fall of the Soviet Union, and then like, or like the time that the government had that we're now in situated itself so that even like another world peace movement or another Soviet Union would never emerge at all. Um, and Cornell West and this whole thing about catastrophe mm -hmm. also justifies mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. how a generation, either leftists or Americans, whether they be in a way black or white, could perceive like America, but in a sense, like that philosophy that he does have has an end to it. Like there, it doesn't continue. There is no nothing that produces from his philosophy. Um, so yes, the black prophetic tradition and Martin Luther King is what he can use, what that is useful um, at all for him to think even in more creative ways um, yeah. because he isn't beholden to the West or to the um, the philosophy of the American um, tradition in and of itself because of King or because it's the rights movement. But there is still this question about his pessimism and what that could be taken advantage of or in what way does he see his options or whatever. But, mm -hmm. and so another thing that I find interesting is this recentering question mm -hmm. that we're putting on the table because, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. recentering also means like a certain type of working out or like <laughs> developing other conclusions or synthesizing things that in other situations or in other time periods wouldn't match up with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because. Mm -hmm. It is true in a sense that, like, I kind of agree with you, Michelle, about the categories of each person, like Trump, RFK, and Cornell. But then in a sense, I'm thinking that, like, their categories in are not, like, strict. They're not, like, one type of person is, like, Trump and one type of person <laughs> is Robert K. or F. Jr., yeah. even if they are, like, Robert Jr. does come out of a certain respectability of, like, the civil rights movement, a certain, um, that certain vibe. And Trump, he, he speaks to a certain type of America. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it isn't mm -hmm. like that category exists yet either in the same way. And Cornell West, I don't think he has a particular category at all. That he, um, in a way, like though he emerges from this um, left politics, mm -hmm. doesn't pertain to mm -hmm. like a black, you know, mm -hmm. or a. So that makes me think that. It, there's a lot of working out that's mm -hmm. gonna happen yeah. and has also happened to create these men in general. And it is exciting that um, they, 
will force a certain dialogue or be forced into a certain dialogue yeah, with one another yeah, 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 yeah. because they are attacking at the angles in which they now talk about or you know to the public certain sides of the ruling class whether that be pharma or the military-industrial uh, military complex, right, right. the deep state, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. or what oh, Purple yeah. was also saying about, oh, yeah. uh, in terms of the intelligentsia, that there is a particular side that one would have to take. Like literally the university is being in par with the warring machine or in par with the FBI. So that's <laughs> like a huge blow and that is not something entirely that trump is doing and that could be something that cornell is doing so in a way there is and who knows who else is going to just jump up and be like hey i can run for president now because of the open and and almost unusual um characteristics required to feel upon oneself that they can run for president in this america or the america that is coming to into being but um so it's like it's nothing is static at all and everything is very much like moving parts but it is true that like i guess it's we will like they will soon become more clear on a, the essential question being war and peace mm -hmm. which is the one mm -hmm. that they really mm -hmm. have to answer right right um right but they do attack the state that the American government is in a particular way. Um, and Trump is the person who attacks it most directly um, or most essentially. Um, though, so it's like, it, it, I think it just comes to the point of how will things be worked out? more than anything else in my mind. Um, but I think that's also the exciting aspect. Um, okay, I can read comments. There is quite a lot of vigorous discussion about certain facets, I think, of what we've been talking about, sort of similar to last week. But I think before I read the comments, I just want to say that I really appreciate how we take the time to explore all of this because I feel like, like others have been saying, it's a very complex and also like dynamic situation where there are individual personalities at play. And then there are also, I guess, like these institutions of different parties, different loyalties of the left, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. But then I think our emphasis is trying to explore where are the American people going? Like in all of the ways that maybe they have been separated from each other, what are the points of commonality like between these three candidates and the people who would support them, which I think constitute literally a majority of the population of the United States. And because of that, I feel like it's been, yeah, just a lot to process where I think for me, I was like, yeah, like why? Like, why is Cornell West running for president now? Like, what does it mean? What does it mean that he's chosen the People's Party and like not the Democratic Party, not the Green Party? And I feel like the thing is, is that I think many people feel compelled to like basically move in this moment. And 
I think it'll take some time to figure out like where, yeah, like where the chips land and then also the choices that will be made to either come together and build unity or to like go in a different way. But I think many people were also exploring um, things. So comments, um, Todd, Jake, Chris Romero, Ware Pilgrim, Midwestern Marks, Willingly Nomadic, um, and Philip Logan are all, they all said good morning. Danny Jacobs says, Trump is indicted under the same act that the Rosenbergs and Eugene Debs were indicted. And the documents that Trump was being charged with illegally taking are the same documents that disprove the Russia collusion hoax. And then Danny was saying some stuff about the state, that the state is oppressive even when the people are in control. The point is that the state is justified or necessary because of the international situation of imperialism. And he's saying that that's Lenin's view, not anarcho-syndicalism, and that Mao also apparently had a critique of Khrushchev's state of the whole people. And I think basically his position that he like clarified is that I think it's wrong to condemn nations and like states that protect themselves from imperialism, like imperialist intrusion, intrusions, brinksmanship and aggression. But that I think Danny said that Lenin's goal and also like the general ideal is ultimately something stateless. Um, and that like the necessity of the present situation is different from the goal, which I think we've already sort of talked about in previous free school discussions. Um, Jasper was responding to, I think the part in Cornell's Democracy Now! interview and the way that he depicted America, Russia and China all as imperialist nations. And he comments, Russia and China aren't what they were in the 60s or in their revolutionary moment. Being a Stalinist or a Maoist who doesn't think these states are capitalist and who fights against people who call them authoritarian made sense maybe back in the day. But today, all we can say is that their state is not as militant as the US or pretend Russia and China are still what they were back in the day and defend them on principle. And he had another comment about while later, which I think is sort of related, where he says, peace should not just mean the dark colored bourgeoisie and the light colored bourgeoisie being buddy buddy and culturally respectful and exploiting workers together, nor the Afro-Asiatic bourgeoisie dominating the white bourgeoisie and everyone else. And so I, I think that, um, yeah, there's something in that where there's an assumption of like, okay, like what does peace mean? Like, is peace something for the elites or is it something for basically the ordinary working people? And I actually think this is why the mention of the peace economy is pretty important because I think we're talking about peace as something that is actually the most necessary for democracy and that would most actually uplift the ordinary working and poor people of the world. And that in this, like, it makes no sense, I think, to argue for peace as something that benefits the elites only. Um, and I feel like actually in some ways that's kind of, I think exactly the ruling class position on like this war with Ukraine that like, oh, like actually it's elitist or it's privileged to talk about peace. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think I just disagree with that. And I also think that it ignores the fact that the white worker in America today in fact, like the greatest possibilities are for the white worker as a force for peace. And that peace as basically the basis 
for like an actually principled unity among peoples. Um, but sorry, there are many, many comments. Um, and then Willingly Nomadic says LMAO, like I agree on the stance of like the communist party of the USA. Um, it's upsetting to say the least, like basically where they have gone. Um, DJ Alf wants to bring up, I think many past points that he's made about the People's Party and criticisms of it. Um, basically he says that the People's Party oppresses its workers, that they use celebrities and that they are elitists. Um, Damien Taylor, who's a new commenter, asked us if we are anti-capitalist and says basically just people's party is capitalist 100% and says that we need to study China, which I think we have studied China, but, and then, yeah, I think there's some questioning about like, why would you ever want to support the people's party in any sense? Like basically I think there's a broad dismissal of the people's party as being anti-socialist and also I think populist in a bad way, which I think is also connected to the Rage Against the War Machine rally. And that in relation to basically the PSL sponsored March rally against the war in Ukraine. And so it's, I feel like we don't necessarily need to like talk that much about it because we've talked about it so extensively in past free schools. But it's interesting that this is a consistent thing that is coming up. Like this is a big question of, I think, where the left is, where their loyalties lie and what they choose to see and continue to see um, in this moment. And so, and then where Pilgrim also says, there's talk of a potential coalition or something to that, that, that effect between the Green Party and the People's Party regarding Cornell's run. Um, there are valid concerns about the leadership of the Green Party, People's Party and other parties. Those issues have to be dealt with, but the bigger picture should not be overlooked. Um, and Todd adds that Chris had just stated that he would connect Cornell with the Green Party to have discussions um, basically for the purpose of greater ballot access. And then let's see, there's, I think that's most of the like core comments about everything but yeah I think it's really interesting like all these comments like I think it's good that people feel and want to share how they're feeling because I feel like there's just a lot to think about um but I think because yeah it's so dynamic my main question is what do these candidates represent like what do the people actually have in common at this moment and how is like that and the possibility of unity like for me, I think that's by far the most important thing. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, maybe there are things that like every person is not immediately comfortable with or has questions about. But I think in this moment of like crisis and also like the moving towards a recentering, I think basically every person has to ask themselves like, yeah, where do I want to stand in this? Like what ideas was I maybe wrong about? What has changed in the people themselves? and what needs to change in, I think, your conception of politics mm -hmm. even, or of ideology. Mm -hmm. Because if it is, yeah, like in this new world, like the ground, like the ground is literally shifting. And I feel like what you can see is that the American people, the vast majority of the American people are ready to shift with it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think everybody necessarily needs to be comfortable with it, 
but I think if our goal is to actually build a better future, don't, I feel like we just need to try to understand it and to actually like believe in some of it. Cause I think also there, I think, yeah, there's just a tendency to like dismiss things or criticize them immediately if it's not up to your idea of like, oh, this isn't socialist or, oh, this isn't sufficiently anti-capitalist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the thing is, is that in reality, like things are not going to occur in their most ideal or complete form. And we have, we all have, I think, difficult choices to make, but I think the time demands like that you actually do take a stand on something because everybody else in this country is like basically deciding like, what kind of future do I want to live in? Like, mm-hmm. do I believe that like through the course of like this election, like these debates that we can actually come to like a shared agreement? Cause I think all three of the candidates are also talking about American imperialism and the decline of America, the question of whether America has a future or not. And what I'm most excited about is hopefully that in the three of them talking together, that you can actually, yeah, like build a new language of, oh, like we come at it in different ways. We see different things because our base is different and our priorities in some ways are different. But do we see that like there is still, I think, a possibility for democracy, like collective democracy, for the people to actually like, yeah, like find something that they have in common and to move towards that. And it doesn't have to be like perfect, um, but I think, yeah, like what, where do you actually stand in all of this? Yeah, can I I just add to what you're saying? Because actually it reminds me of, um, I was reading, I think it was Robeson's speech accepting the Stalin Peace Prize, where there's a part where he says, in essence, like what is happening around the world right now, he says it is the emergence of a people's century. Like he calls it in those terms. And, but then he also pairs it by saying that like the ruling elites in the West and in particular in the United States, that they're convinced that it's a quote unquote American century, but they haven't realized that he says, the, the elites of the West have not realized that civilization has passed them by already. And I don't know, just like reading that, it was really crazy because that's like literally everything that we've been talking about. But it was really, um, I guess, affirming to hear him say it so clearly in those terms that civilization has passed them by and civilization is moving ahead. But you can also draw a correlation to that or a kind of an um, analogy for that for basically like whether you identify with yourself as like part of the left or not, the question is, is basically have the American people passed the left by like the American people themselves, like the working class and the vast majority of people who make up this country, they have passed or they have already passed by basically like the so-called left. And I think that that provokes, I think a crisis too amongst, yeah, whether it's like PSL, DSA. And I feel like what we're essentially trying to understand and grapple with and to be able to meet on its own terms is that, yeah, regardless of however, like however much like leftists or other people will say like, oh, we're trying to build quote unquote socialism. We're trying to build quote unquote working class power. Still, I feel like the American people and the working class in particular will pursue politics on its own terms. And you have to either try to make sense of that or just, yeah, as Doc says, like get out of the way. And I think the thing that is, I've been thinking about, I think also through the discussion is that um, 
The interesting thing about, I feel like, this upcoming election is that part of what unites people is, yes, the war and peace question, but actually, I feel like one of the most concrete, the other most concrete thing that unites all three of these candidates, but also the people who are interested in them, is the question of the ruling class. It is essentially the question of the ruling class. And, like, it, the interesting thing about the experience of the Trump presidency and also, yeah, the indictment of Trump, all of these attacks on Trump, but also the attacks on RFK Jr. and the, the attacks that are coming against Cornell West is that it is forcing all the people, like all of the vast amount of people who are interested in these candidates to think much more concretely about, okay, shall we basically come together and go to war with the ruling class? Will we come together and go to battle against our own ruling class and how will we do so? Because that's part of, I feel like that, like essentially this 20, like the 24, the 2024 election is calling upon the American people to actually think much more about, we do not want to be ruled in the same way, but how will we actually come together and go to war against our own ruling class in a way that they have maybe not have to have to have had to think about so clearly before. And I see this like, yeah, even in like my own family where you don't, I've never heard the terms ruling elite used in my family up until the Trump presidency, right? Up until certain members of my family have basically like, like had to like look at Trump and be like, oh yeah, like actually there is a ruling class in this country and we don't like being ruled in this way. Even if I don't know necessarily like what would replace it, like you're very aware that you are being ruled and you do not like being ruled. And I think the last thing that I was thinking about is that I feel like when you're growing up in this country, basically elections and politics are presented to you as basically like either an election is you choosing between different flavors of ice cream or something, or it's like rooting for your favorite sports team. Like that is, I feel like the entirety of how politics is presented to young people growing up in this country. But actually, yeah, like especially this upcoming election, what is being presented to the people is much more than that. It is a question of this election is an opportunity for the American people to come together and actually, as people were saying, work, think, work out questions that have been thus far not been put on the table yet. Now is the time, to, like basically these candidates, but also the people themselves put certain existential, philosophical and political ideological questions on the table for themselves to figure out. And one of those foremost among them is the question of what are we going to do about our own ruling class? How are we going to be able to overcome them if not through seeking new forms of unity that have not maybe occurred to us before. Um, and I feel like, yeah, all of that is basically being missed by like, because I feel like also many on the left still see politics as basically like choosing your favorite flavor of ice cream or something. And like, it's, it's more about just like the personalities and like, oh, I don't like this person because he's not like anti-capitalist enough. When it's like, that's not really the question anymore. Like, it's not about the slogan, like the labels that you put on yourself. And it's much more about the people and where the, as you saying, like where the people are moving. And, and, you know, if I could just say something, I very much agree with what Uri and uh, Jeremiah are saying. Uh, I think the left will already, and is already, whatever, however we define the left. I mean, this is a, a, a general and nebulous phrase these days. But um, the left is going to be a problem because they do not represent very much of anything. Uh, they are not organically linked to the people. Uh, and they have a theory of politics and a theory of their parties, uh, which 
is either something close to libertarianism, uh, which is the comfortable position, uh, and and that's the huge influence of Noam Chomsky, or um, they are um, some form of anarchist. And, and there's certain gestures, uh, philosophical and political gestures that they make that kind of let you know uh, where they stand. Uh, for example, um, the theory, well, first of all, not to discuss the state or to diminish democracy and say, well, that's good and well, but we're socialist. Once you see a, a move like that, it's either indicative of deep confusion about what democracy and what the democratic struggle is, or um, it's um, uh, uh, an, an anarchist and narco-syndicalist position. Anarchism is not a small matter. It is huge. Uh, no less of a figure than Noam Chomsky, either calls himself a libertarian socialist or an anarcho-syndicalist. There's another very uh, prominent political economist, Wolf. Wolf, Johan, what is his first name? You know the guy at University of Mass? Yeah, Richard Wolf, I think. Richard Wolf. He claims to be a Marxist, but he is really uh, an anarcho-syndicalist. Yeah. It's not unusual. Most of your, quote, left trade unionists uh, that are in DSA or something like that are really anarcho-syndicalists. Now, what is the problem with anarcho-syndicalism? Well, quite simply, it dismisses or trivializes the democratic struggle. That is why they do not understand up until this day the civil rights movement. They don't understand King. to all the old left. Uh, oh, sorry, I didn't realize I wasn't on. No, go ahead. What were you saying, May? No, no, no. You, you talk, Doc. Okay, I'm sorry. But so it's very important that we see this as a great struggle for democracy to take power from this tiny elite who are ruling us. And, and to be very honest about it, almost everybody knows it in one way or another, that this is not a democracy, that the people do not rule, that we cannot speak our mind. I mean, just the whole thing. Now, Trump is the greatest problem, not because he is the problem, but it is the politics of even an RFK or a Cornell West. They don't understand Trump, nor do they understand that Trump is probably the most brilliant and skillful politician in the country today. RFK and Cornell, I mean, he just couldn't stand up to what he does. He is the leading politician in this country, and he must be respected as such. 
uh, and the attacks upon him are ultimately attacks upon his base of support, which is much bigger than it was even in 2020. In other words, if he got 74 million votes, then I would suggest that the base, that Trump's base is bigger now than then and more uh, demographically, racially, ethnically diverse. It is genuinely, as he calls it, a movement. Neither Cornell nor RFK have understood this. And forgive me, I have not mentioned Marianne Williamson, and she should be mentioned. She's a factor in all of this, especially on the question of peace. Um, And I didn't mean to overlook her. Uh, But, you know, all of the attention is around the three people that we're talking about. Uh, The other thing I want to say, just a small point. See, this, I think a lot of people are locked into some dogma about the left. Um, And, um, you know, what left? What ideas are you talking about? I think it's very, and in fact, I'll just end up, it's very childish and infantile what they're calling the left. These are not very serious uh, people. It's almost like kindergarten. Um, And they have no imagination. Uh, They do not think in the uh, elevated ways that ordinary people think in, and we've seen it ourselves in these churches, in these mosques, in these communities. People are thinking the levels of consciousness are unprecedented. The American people are in a dynamic state, a very dynamic state, uh, uh, often uh, uh, Nu associated with uh, evolutionary biology and Stephen Gould, a a state of punctuated equilibrium, a new equilibrium is being formed. And uh, as Emily said, the center will not hold. The center, the fulcrum upon which politics and governing is supposed to take place, the center is not holding. And as such, we are in a state of punctuated equilibrium, a new center, a new center of discourse, a new way of politics, a new way of politics, where we're talking about new kinds of coalitions, where Cornell has to see Trump not in any stereotypical or something you got off of the uh, New York Times or something like that. You can't see him that way because he represents too many people. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. So he is going to have to have a rapprochement with Trump. This is where the Greens might be an obstacle and the People's Party encouraging of it. You know, 
I mean, I hope the Green Party gets on board with Cornell and uses its ballot access for him. But it's not going to be that easy because in 2020, Howard, Howie, whatever his last name was, who was their presidential candidate, was on the side of the neo-fascists in Ukraine. So that, that's what I would say. I feel like that was a good place to end for today. And it doesn't look like we have any more comments. The future is bright. Okay, I just heard Meg come off mute. I know because- Comment? Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say something. But uh, I was just saying that this also makes me very hopeful because uh, I think like for a lot of people who come to, for for the for university education here and and they tend to follow like the electoral like the presidential elections and debates quite closely. I think the thing that was making me hopeful is that like with Cornel West coming in and like speaking about the black prophetic tradition and talking about like music and all of this that and about love. I think like it also gives an opportunity to people like us to like know about how to situate ourselves to move away from the white framework and like look towards and, and then using this new framework to look at like these issues of war and peace and how to recognize what people's aspirations are. I think that that was something that yeah, I was thinking about. And also like even in like a lot of countries, like India, for example, like a lot of people in universities do follow these debates. So I think that this sort of gives you like that bridge and in, in a way this election teaches people back home also how to like look at things like the framework yeah. oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah and i know i don't you know and this is a huge problem for the international movement because it's extremely difficult for people understand the politics of this country given the mediation of the corporate media. And, uh, you know, we talk about India and Nandathan Raju and, and Ram Mohan Rai and the different problems that, that they're having politically. Yeah. In a lot of ways, depending upon how things go politically in the United States, will will have a an effect Definitely. of making their work easier. Because part of Indian politics, especially the Congress party, uh, is that they are aligning the, the Congress party, not the BJP necessarily. The Congress party aligns itself with the American neoliberals and neocons and the British. You know, if, they, if the neocons are weakened, it will have a ripple effect on the Congress party in India. You know, but. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, actually, my last point is also about, it's kind of connected to both what Neha was saying about the, un the role of universities, but also what you were saying, Doc, about the role of the left. Because I think also, if you're not in the US, it can be confusing about what we, what you, I feel like it's easy to also get confused about what is left 
because everyone proclaims themselves to be left. Everyone complains, proclaims themselves to be revolutionary. But the left today and people who self-proclaim as revolutionaries today are not the same as the left or the revolutionaries who are part of a worldwide peace movement where you could you would be able to go to different countries and know who's really part of the same united struggle against imperialism and for peace and so that's what's also in the u.s very like in some ways what we were talking about earlier there's something very like abstract now like very like abstract not grounded in reality anymore of even like what is considered like left or radical or revolutionary and yeah, I just wanted to bring up like something also what Jeremiah was saying. Like this is about Trump and obviously the what we're what we're now calling the crucial triad of RFK Trump and Cornell West, but especially Trump. Like I was saying this to everyone before we started the live stream, I think, but Trump is so like Trump can just not be underestimated and he's so important because look at just the way look at like it's what jeremiah was saying about his own family look at the way the trump movement and trump supporters increasingly the language they're using and the consciousness that's reflected like there is this rolling stone article the whole purpose was to talk about what trump supporters were saying in their own online forum about trump's federal indictment and the whole point of the article was to talk about how these trump supporters are violent violent people but their violent sayings what they were saying that was so violent was saying that we need to like we need to seize power from the and verbatim they said we need to seize power from the political elites like this is the way they're talking and so it puts into question if you are so-called radical in this country a so-called leftist a so-called revolutionary and you're going along with this rhetoric of like yeah these people are fascist these people are violent then you're totally missing actually what is pretty actually revolutionary about the stance they're taking against the elites. And it's just, and so I feel like that's also going to be like you were saying, doc, important for the world to see, like to see, because I think it is true. Like Raju wanted to say this, I feel like it's true even to a certain extent and like the educated Chinese who come to the U S and then go back to China, people are confused about what actually is the left is the left PSL or is the real revolutionary force something that people in the US and the left is plays a role in marketing as fascist. And yeah, and so I think that's why the next two years is going to be really important. Because even someone like I said before, even someone like Cornell West is going to play a role in changing what we understand to actually be revolutionary versus like, call just calling it like, left or whatever and and that's also because the party he's running with the party ticket he's running on is a group that people the same people who try to smear trump supporters for being violent all this stuff fascist but actually are talking about targeting the ruling class and like being ready to do so is the same people who are attacking the people's party and saying yeah their rally in february was fascist like blah 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 this or that even though they're calling for a united front against the war machine. Um, so yeah, I think this going back to when Neha was saying, like, I'm also feeling really hopeful. That's why like Perba throughout the week kept being like, Perba was like, I'm so excited for Saturday because like we have so much to talk about. And it's the same thing because there's a feeling of just, there's oxygen now. Yeah.
there's oxygen and when there used to never even be space in the ideological landscape there's like there's oxygen now and a lot of it like jeremiah was saying comes from trump the shock to the system and after that shock it can never be glued together again can i just say one last thing because this thing you were saying about violence it just i mean it's so clear what people you know what something like this rolling stone article is saying that it's only violence when it's directed against the ruling class and you know, what what's happening to the people you know the poverty you know what's happening in the streets of philadelphia when you walk out this crazy smog that's basically you have to walk through every time you get is this not violence i mean who's going to account for any of this and going back to this thing that emily was saying about why everybody feels so excited it's also because at every point you feel like vindicated for the stance that preschool has been taking literally at the 10th anniversary we were saying knowledge and the revolutionary spirits of this time and if cornell west deciding to run for president of the united states does not indicate that this is a pre-revolutionary moment i don't know what does okay well if no one has anything else to say i think this is a great note to end on um, yeah, well, as we know, next week, we're not going to have another free school like this. We'll all be on the second day of our, we'll all be on our second day of um, our Inter-Civilizational Festival event. We're excited to see all of you for Friday, the documentary screening at the Church of the Overcomer, which is in Trainer, um, and then also as well, the um, Festival of Art and Culture on Saturday, June 17th, doors open at 10 a.m. It's all free, there's free lunch um, on Saturday and there'll be so many performances and you'll never see anything like it. And we, for everyone who, um, who, for anyone who's in the comment section and is used to watching things online, we will not be live streaming either day of the event. Um, so we hope that one day you can join us in person, um, but we'll see everyone in two weeks back at the live stream, but um, take care. And this was another fantastic free school. Bye.